I describe Austin as the kind of place if you grow up in a small town in Texas or in the South and you're different, it's a place to escape to. I remember moving there and just thinking, oh, this is all I really want. I just want to be here, watch movies, make movies. A lot of people thought, oh, you'd have to go to New York or LA to do what I do. But I was like, no, I'm just going to make it work here. And so I've been lucky. I've, that's, that's what I've done. I may live badly, but at least I don't have to work to do it. The idea of Slacker came to me, I remember about two in the morning, I was driving late at night on a long trip alone. And the idea of the film, the narrative structure of the film kind of hit me in one shot. Like, why couldn't you tell a story that moves from one character to the next to the next? I was 23, just in love with cinema and its possibilities. And I was thinking, what is cinema? What can it do? What are its boundaries? So that idea of an experimental narrative kind of hit me and then stayed with me. And then six years later, I was actually making that film, but I thought about it for six years. So much of the content in Slacker is kind of found object art. Something I heard, it was in a conversation years earlier in Missoula, Montana, for instance, on the Madonna pap smear. A very intelligent, quirky friend of mine named Matt was theorizing on the pornography of the future. He said it might be Madonna pap smears. And so I just remember that as a, it's just a thought, not original to me, but out there in the world via a conversation I was in. And then it finds its way into this movie as a actual commodity. You know, there it is, a Madonna pap smear for sale. But I always give Matt credit for that. And I've run into him a couple times over the years. Always fun. The movie is a little crazy, actually. I haven't seen it just lately, but last time I did, I thought, oh, what a weird mindset I must have. It's like, uh, you know, in The Wizard of Oz, when Dorothy meets the Scarecrow and they do that little dance at that crossroads and they think about going all those directions and they end up going in that one direction. I mean, all those other directions, just because they thought about it, became separate realities. I mean, they just went on from there and lived the rest of their life. One time I had lunch with Tolstoy. Another time I was a roadie for Frank Zappa. Young, we mourn for one woman as we grow old for women in general. You, 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 you should, you should never traumatize a woman sexually. I should know. I'm a medical doctor. We've been on Mars since 62. It was May 22nd. That's a very important day for you to remember, pal. I take Scooby-Doo, you know? Scooby-Doo, like, looks at you. It's like, it's like, like, there's Shaggy and there's Scooby-Doo. And they say, hey, why don't you beat the shit out of this bad guy? And, like, we'll give you a Scooby snack. And they'll go, oh, duh. may live badly, but at least I don't have to work to do it.
the next person who passes us will be dead within a fortnight. Yourself? Oh, yeah. You, you know me. I've been uh, keeping up with my uh, JFK assassination theories, you know. Oh, really? Yeah. Uh, a video image is much more powerful and useful than an actual event. It's a Madonna pap smear. Okay, you're watching Movie Night Extravaganza, and I am here with my co-host, as always, Jay Andrew, the Texas guy. How's it going? Pretty good. How you doing? You're gonna have some uh, some homespun some homespun Texas stories for us, I think. I I am I am because this movie brought back a flood of them. All right, and we're also joined by Matthew Film Guy with absolutely no the no the whatsoever. Frequent no if ands or thes. <laughs> Frequent majority report contributor and letterbox guru um, at, at Landon Boom on uh, both Letterbox and Twitter, as you can see on his uh, on his brilliant <laughs> title card underneath. <laughs> so Find nice. me, talk movies with me. What's yeah. <laughs> Thanks well, for having me, as always. Always a pleasure to be talking with you guys. Yeah, uh, for sure. And this is our first kind of more intimate, I think. Uh, Matthew film guy episode session and um you know I mean more of these to come I'm sure but so far we've had you on panels and I feel like you've been a little bit underutilized with uh with with those because you know everyone's it's kind of like six people talking over each other which is something that I'm trying to start to get away from I think on these shows um trying to bring it down a little bit and you know make it a little more intimate a little more candlelit romantic Hey, you buy me dinner. Who knows what could happen? <laughs> we might make a movie together. Make sweet, might, beautiful might, movies together. We might end up getting locked in the basement to edit our to edit our upcoming film, and he's gonna be like, "When did I agree to that?" But candlelit dinner, baby. Could be a lot of could be a lot of dinners, but it, hey, you never know. Could be a lot of dinners. Um, <laughs> yeah, I'm starting that already. Um, <laughs> So Listen, you got to stick with your core brand proposition, as the man once said. I mean, I you know, I think I think impressions have been uh, part of that for as long as uh, <laughs> as long as I've been doing stuff. Whether it's um, you know, whether it was give them an argument where it kind of started to come out a little bit the more I was on, or this show, I think Trump impressions have been, have played highly within my <laughs> lack of success. <laughs> well, far be it for me to uh, stand in the way of your. You know your true self and your, your vision <laughs> all right so tonight we're going to be talking about richard linkladder's slacker i mean as people probably guessed from the cold open and the you know the talk about it that richard linkladder gives at the beginning and um i i think that this is a a, a cool movie to start out kind of a, a 90s uh indie binge with because i think more than any other movie this kind of um started like started um, uh, um, an indie trend, I think, in the 90s that, you know, Clerks, obviously Kevin Smith was very inspired by going to see this on his 21st birthday. Um, and, you know, I mean, Days and Confused is 
the next Linklater movie that he kind of does. And you can see um, large echoes, I think, of, of this movie in that, but like kind of for, for a wider audience. And even I think Clint, uh, Quentin Tarantino, um, I think if you really look into it, like the way that he has characters kind of talk about what's happening on TV and Saturday morning cartoons and all of that stuff, I think really comes out of this style of filmmaking. Um, and I know that there's been moments where they've had uh, Tarantino like introduce this film and introduce Ga uh, Dazed and Confused on, on different stages. If I remember correctly, Slacker played at Sundance in 1991 and then Reservoir Dogs was 92. So the, those two years were kind of like pretty seismic in the terms of setting the tone for indie film. I, you know, I don't know that Tarantino saw Slacker per se, like the way that um, Kevin Smith did, but they definitely were two of the sort of the two headed Hydra that started or reflected the sort of pop culture as, uh, you know, fodder for discussion uh, and or pretentious theories around pop culture uh, trend that, you know, definitely went on to define the 90s for sure, at least on one level. Yeah. And it also kind of I think um, both of them were kind of a, a, a definitional like Generation X, um, you know, couple like two directors link ladder on one side who um you know i mean this movie kind of is the definitional uh you know gen x movie and then obviously which, tarantino, is, which is actually funny too because i think link himself is actually a boomer and maybe tarantino is too they're just yeah. on the edge they're just one of those late boomers but you know what categories being what they are he's still reflecting the milieu of 1989 austin which is for the most part gen x yeah i was, I was I was 14 years old, 14 years old in 1989. So I recognize some of this, but this was the, this was the older kids, the older side of the, of the ledger. But I see, I don't want to, I don't want to step on your intro too much, but I, you know, all the uh, cultural sort of baggage, all the sort of time travel aspects of this movie, I, I definitely think that's uh, interesting to talk about and, and can lead to a lot of interesting discussions. But I think this movie works as a work of cinema it, and, and in that sense is timeless in what it's trying to do and what it's able to do. So uh, those are the those are the tools. Those are the uh, you know the the clay that he's using. The sculpt is all those things. But um, I think it's it's doing a, a disservice to look at this movie just as a a pop cultural artifact. Uh, even though obviously so many fun things to dig into on that level too. Yeah, and and I don't think that it's just a pop cultural artifact. I mean, I think that. Um, I, I have a, a different opinion of this movie, I guess, after watching it alone and then watching, um, which I, I clip parts of, like the, the commentary that uh, Richard Linklater gives about why he chose to make scenes a certain way. And a lot of it is about like informational um, transition, I guess, like the way that information transit, like uh, is transited from one person to another. Like there's the whole scene um, where he's where he has the, the girl and the guy walking um, right before the JFK scene where she's calling him an asshole and talking about like the sources that he's been reading and um very and key really, scene as far as i'm concerned yeah well so he's like i have a thing that i clipped here i'll i'll, I'll play this first because i think it, it really um I, I think i think this is a great informational source of this movie talking about secondhand sources which is something that's only gotten so much worse since the age of uh social media but like yeah. it's interesting that to guy's hear. done his research yeah so like the echoes the echoes of uh of, of this right now in a pandemic where um like secondhand sources play a huge role in, in the amount of disinformation that we've gotten is, is really cool i think so this scene was 
about kind of a specific critique of this kind of secondary, you know, what I saw that so much of the information in the movies coming from secondary sources. It's not about, you know, like say the JFK assassination scene coming up. It's not about the JFK assassination. It's how it's been treated in the media. It's about books about it. It's not about the act itself. So I think that's just how I feel about most things that you're sort of at least a generation or two away from the actual event. You know, if you think about what you've ever experienced so much is via images, you know, like you've never really seen a caribou in your real life. You've never been to the, the tundra, but you, yet you feel you kind of have, but you really haven't. You know, if you take away what you've seen via media sources or you read, you know, we're really just kind of shells of people. We have our little interactions in our little places. So that's what's kind of neat, though. We're via our brains and our technologies. We're seemingly connected to a larger world. But in our essence, we're, there's really not much going on and we're pretty isolated. Damn. Yeah. Well said there, Rick. Yeah. And, and I think, you know, that's gotten so much worse. Um, since kind of social media came around where you can literally watch a video of something presumably in real time and feel like you're experiencing it, not just like on, on TV through like a, a filter of like establishment media, which is something that I think that Blink Ladder is really critical of throughout this whole movie. But like you're seeing it like so-called on the ground, like we see the rise of citizen journalists, we see the rise of kind of, you know, um, people kind of live streaming events and you're supposed to like um, assume that you're seeing something in real time and you're kind of almost there, like transported to being um, what, what like transport, transported to seeing what the person's um, camera or the person's phone is seeing. And, you know, so it's a whole nother level of, um, of like personalization of media that's coming from secondhand, thirdhand, fourthhand sources. You know, when I look at a movie, I'm asking myself, uh, you know, when it's like a, a movie that's trying to be a, you know, a serious work of art, an actual movie, an expression of somebody's soul. I'm asking, like, what is the what is the spiritual questions it is addressing or what are the what are the higher realm problems that it is attempting to tackle? So I, I definitely agree with all of the analysis you just gave about the sort of uh, sort of cultural critique that it's making. But I also want to focus on like you know, what that does to what that does to human beings, you know, this sort of, you know, a lot of reviews in this movie talk about alienation that we're so alienated. And this segment that he his commentary speaks to how we're very, very much removed from, you know, whether it's information, but also experience, right, you don't have any firsthand experiences. And what that does to you in a way, because it gives you the, you know, the sort of uh, feeling that you know, these things, so you feel powerful. And yet you actually, it's like the the shell of it. So it's sort of hollow. It doesn't resonate in the same way as someone who actually lived these things. I'm also thinking of the, the older guy who tells the story of fighting uh, in the Spanish Civil War, but it's really yeah. the story of it. You know, the, these ways, these stories that they start to even seem real to us. But but don't forget that that scene, apart from all the um, the sort of cultural satire about it uh, when, he's when he's talking to his girlfriend, it's also the story of a young pretentious guy lecturing his girlfriend, you know, like it's still this like interpersonal sort of tone deaf, this sort of uh, attempt to connect that doesn't, you know, all the things that he's read is, is actually causing him a problem relating to this woman who is actually very patient 
and is you know very uh, evolved enough to say like I need a break. I just you know like I'll still go see the movie with you after. Like there's so many levels to that scene that uh, beyond you know which is I think important the the idea that you know what she, what she's saying, but but like you know movies are not essays. Movies are not uh, articles. They're you know their experiences, their works of art. They have this aesthetic quality that means that what you're you, you, you it's not just a one to one sort of analysis of the dialogue to understand what's going on there there's other levels and i mean clearly licklander underscores this idea that all the things that we're able to see and hear through the media and like you said got way worse or better depending on how you look at it with the internet is like it's a good thing on one hand but on the other hand it's you know what are the costs what are the emotional spiritual and then therefore downstream cultural and societal costs um, and I think this movie is so great at making fun of that. Like it's not ever a lecture, but it, it really pokes fun at this, you know, at, at its core serious spiritual malaise that, that we are feeling even worse now, 30 years later. Yeah. And, and I think that, you know, there's different implications of it. I mean, like, like you're saying, which is like, you know, on a, on a societal level, like it, there's its own set of implications, but on the, on like a personal level, like there's the implication of just like, you sound like an asshole that she tells him. You know what I mean? Like, yeah. yeah. She, like he's throwing out all these sources if he, as if he knows more than her and is just kind of parroting things back to her, which is obviously a problem that's gotten much worse as we kind of not like, as we just not just digest um, things we see in newspapers or magazines or, you know what I mean? Like on TV, but as we like literally have the ability to digest as many things as we want instantly online, um, there's that very personal cost, which is just like, well, I want to be right. So here, here's a bunch of sources that I'm basically regurgitating back to you. Just like, yeah, well, you sound like an asshole right now. Like, I, I, you've lost the ability to personally connect to someone that you supposedly care about. Um. Yeah, you want to be right or you want to be, you know, there's there's these, uh, you know, media mediates, right? It, it's between you and, and me or between me and this experience. And that can be good if, you know, it brings you some experience that you couldn't get any other way. But it also does put this layer between you and the thing itself so you know he's regurgitating and listen like like every film guy i probably ran that scene in my own life in my 20s with some <laughs> woman that god forbid that she's watching this now but that you know i'm just i don't i'm not saying there's a specific one but millions of uh people especially i think this movie is like uh hard or lo a loving tweak on the sort of the autodidact right like these people probably went to college probably got some degrees. They talk about it a little bit, but they're also just like, you know, over-educated in a way and without the sort of, you know, it's the sort of like the Frankenstein thing. It's like their 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 in intellect has been greatly uh, uh, boosted, but their sort of soul, their spiritual wisdom, their maturity has been atrophied at the exact same time. So in this discussion with this girl, like, he should just shut the fuck up. Like he's, yeah. like, you know, he's, you know, and that's, I think the point of this scene is uh, the subtext of the scene, not necessarily what they're saying, but the way that he's um, unfortunately unable to interact with her. Um, I think. And unable to interact with, I mean, I, I grabbed the quote, but um, he's saying um, we're conditioned to assume that all suffering is bad. It's not. See, when you pity someone, all you're able to see is this base creature in them. You can't see any true potential, but it's like all these other futile causes that you fall into. They all stem from a certain weakness. It's like psychologically helping everyone else out is easier. It's an escape from working on yourself, from perfecting yourself. And he says right. that just to her giving like a homeless guy a quarter. 
which yeah lost the ability to really um emotionally empathize with the homeless guy too you know what i mean like it's and this movie feels like throughout a lot of it it's um and they say it explicitly in the anarchist scene it's kind of in in uh in conversation with this like um anarchist leftist spirit i think that a lot of like more independent people have and then this like uh ayn randian um libertarian like self uh self self-indulgent spirit i guess or like you know what i mean like a deeply sociopathic spirit that, that well i mean that that, that anarch anarchist uh tendency is actually very texan in fact uh carl marx actually wanted to move to texas and become a republican because he he vibed with that kind of uh sense of freedom that texas has always had and this libertarian thing's a new thing where you got a lot of people from the outside of texas which um if i remember correctly rand paul was not a native texan he, he came to texas because uh uh, he was playing professional baseball and, and Ron Paul, playing. right? Ron uh, Paul, I'm sorry. Yeah, yeah. yeah. and we get yeah. that huge billboard in that one scene. I don't know if that was set or what, but that was. I uh, think that actually worked out well because I was kind of foreshadowing a bit, because um, it kind of is like like because um, libertarianism fronts itself as like anarchism. You know, uh, they call themselves anarcho-capitalists. Um, but but I yeah, mean, but the guy calls it outrightly selfish individualism. That's no, yeah, no. I, I think I think like the, this movie. Um, one of the lost opportunities of this movie was to actually really kind of like talk a little bit about like like there are and there wasn't a lot of conflict in the movie and, and like like the scene where where we have the the couple that we just watched and talked about there um, was like one of the best scenes because uh, it did have some kind of conflict. It was mostly people monologuing. And it just never quite seemed, uh, I mean, the performances were great and, and there's a lot of good things about that. But like, I, I, I remember getting to that part where he's talking about, it, I'm just like, man, I, I kind of wish they did a little bit more about this. Cause I remember, you know, like back in church, um, we had Ron Paul supporters in my church using the photocopier to copy his racist newsletters to pass out to people. Um, uh, you know, like, like, like uh, and they're, this this conversation was going throughout Texas. I mean, that's not just an Austin thing. And yeah, Austin is where all the weirdos, you know, kind of ended up, unless they left and went to uh, L.A. like uh, uh, my buddy Gabe did, um, or New York. So you know, uh, like, like you know, um, uh, so, so th there is a lot to say about uh, about that. But Austin always was kind of a, a stepping stone for a lot of people too, like that that. That, that mid step so you can kind of uh, establish yourself before you go to LA or New York. I mean, I guess I'll defend it by saying that the point of the movie wasn't conflict. The point of the movie was kind of no. showing this, this no, alternative, I mean, these alternative uh, lifestyles, these alternative ideas. It was about the character of, of, uh, of um, Austin. You know, it wasn't about anything other than just the character of Austin. Yeah. Um, and, but it's also, I, I think I, you could say that there is conflict there, but it's a lot of internal conflict. These are, these are people who are at odds. What they're saying and what they're doing is often at odds. Like they're or the lack of or the lack of what they're doing. I think um, yeah. far more far more likely than the, like what they're actually doing. I mean, how many people do we get exposed as being pretentious? Basically, right? How like how many people do we see? A few people we see as like pretty genuine, um, you know, pretty sort of they're kooky, but 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 honest and and sort of authentic. But we get a lot of pontificating, right? We get a lot of like pseudo intellectual blather yeah, and, that I think is meant to be seen as a problem, not just a uh, funny little anecdote. And, um, and I just wish that the different voices were, were actually different. You know, it sounded like they were written by, you know, uh, 
it all sounded like the same voice whenever people were pontificating, uh, which is one of those things that kind of drove I just me a assume crazy. that was how people in Austin talked. I don't know. I mean, I remember um, uh, I, I uh, in seventh grade, I was fortunate enough to, to uh, know the coolest guy in junior high. And he was this 20 year old about to turn 21 um, guy who, who flunked like every grade and somehow made it to eighth grade. Um, he had a mullet, as, a mustache, you, and a T-bird. Um, <laughs> and, uh, but like, he was the coolest guy. Cause like, like if you're friends with him, when you're in high school, he, uh, you know, and, and you knew him, he'd make sure that he'd get you beer. Uh, like if you paid him, uh, so you can go to the parties and be, you know, considered cool. Cause he brought the beer. Um, Are you so, sure you didn't know Matthew McConaughey? And uh, <laughs> no, pretty dazed much. and confused, or he's driving around. <laughs> no, Matthew McConaughey totally is this uh, this dude who, who um, uh, you know, the coolest guy in junior high. And, <laughs> but but like you know, and he'd like strut around in his members only jacket and, and like you know, um, shake everybody's hands. And <laughs> it was it was ridiculous. But like I remember sitting there, and um, this was right around uh, this was 1990. So this was the uh, the Rick Perry um, uh, Jim Hightower election. Where where Carl Rove worked for Rick Perry, um, you know, like we have a lot of hindsight, and obviously, you know, I've I thought a lot about this, and I remember sitting around, we were having like discussions about it, and all we were doing was just echoing what we heard on the news. Nobody was really like had anything much deeper to say about that. Um, I mean, we were with the coolest guy in junior high, and you know, you have to be pretty smart to be, you know, twenty years old and in eighth grade. <laughs> and that's who you think these everyone sounds like. Uh, to, to a degree, it's it's like these. Uh, it's like him if he actually read like uh, a, um, if he actually watched like zero books uh, YouTube channel and just imitating <laughs> the uh, the intro. Sorry, Doug. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, we get we get people name checking a lot of like you know serious stuff, right? We even from the beginning, where he's like, I had a dream, I had lunch with Tolstoy, and they're talking about Dostoevsky in the in the coffee shop, and you know, so there's I, I there's love this I patina love of intellectualism, scene, by the way. Which I one? love that scene by the, the the scene at the beginning where he's talking about where he had the dream. It's Richard Linklater that's um, yeah acting in that scene, and I, I don't know. I just love that. I love that scene when he, he keeps pausing the conversation and he's like, "Oh man, I, I wish I, you know, we should we should turn around because he's realizing like what he's actually given up on 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 this timeline." You know what I mean? Like, so he's talking about all these multiple timelines, like kind of like a multiverse theory. Everywhere you go, there's an unlimited amount of timelines that kind of open up, and. Uh, and it, it's just it's fascinating that every time he goes, oh, man, I wish I because he's thinking about all the things that like could have happened. He's like, oh, I could have met a woman. I could have gone off with her. Like I wouldn't be in this taxi just heading into Austin. Like and every time he's like, man, I, I, I should have gone back to that uh, to that bus stop. Probably. Uh. <laughs> well, you could sort of see that as a, a thesis statement for the film. You know, right. Mm -hmm. It's like about to just sort of play off these little interconnected moments that may or may not actually implicate each other but that you know one spins off the other some of them have like a real billiard effect uh and some are just sort of they just pass right um yeah and and they and they reference i mean this movie obviously wouldn't come out for another i think decade at least after this decade and a half but um it, during that one scene where they're talking about oblique strategies um yeah, they with, reference that's that's a uh, d montgomery uh rest in peace she she was uh the sound recordist also on this movie. And she was uh, friends with a filmmaker that I've worked with a lot, uh, Kaveh Zahedi. So that's a, that's one of the, I think the best scenes, uh, yeah. you know, because of what you're saying, but also I, I just thought of her as one of the people who is like a real person. 
I, I think she's one of the best actors. Like, I actually think that most of the acting in this movie is not great, but it almost doesn't really matter. Uh, you know, I think everybody is a little awkward. The, the 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 sort of the blocking, if you will, is not really doesn't sometimes doesn't really make sense. It's a little forced, um, but it's again, it's more of a conceptual movie. So these sort of dramaturgical things that we're used to, I don't think uh, are as important. But her performance is so naturalistic. Is she's a she's a real weirdo, um, and she is. I think she's originally from California, but what her the way she comes off is I don't think is meant to be. Uh, chided or ridiculed she's literally you know it's almost like she's a sort of a, a a true example of a of an authentic strange person not not a pretentious one um yeah but, but you were you were wanted to say about all of her uh, the butterfly effect oh no yeah so yeah so she mentions the butterfly effect and she says uh if a butterfly flaps its wings in galveston and something happens i forget the, the entire line but it's interesting that that's kind of referenced i mean that's kind of a, a long-standing um like, it was the late 80s that that sort of that theory was starting to enter the popular culture that i was i was actually assigned the book chaos to read in a in a like a, a reading class and in, in, i guess it was i was in 10th grade so it was the year after 1990 and i defiantly did not read it because that's where i was at at the time but um that, that <laughs> theory, yeah screw you uh anyway but um yeah that that theory was uh percolating into the consciousness uh, uh popular consciousness and he he sets it up there but he also is talking about uh you know the omega man uh wizard of oz right he's he's it's this it's that pop culture it's like it's the only language that we have in a, in a certain sense um but he also i think says something that is i think speaks to the, the the critique that i was sort of getting at earlier he says you know you create your own reality and uh like on one side of the coin that's true but then the other side of the coin is, you know, you're an asshole. Like you don't actually, you have to share reality with everybody. So it, it's this, this uh, uncritical belief in that is a possibly a problem. Uh, yeah. In a lot of ways, this is a reaction to, uh, you know, the, the freedom of and the hippies of the sixties. And, and I think that, you know, there's, I, he never uses the term in the, in the movie, obviously, but there's like kind of the neoliberal turn, um, you know, happening in the decade before this movie comes out under Reagan and, you know, even under Carter um, politically, but there's also an ideological and like, um, I guess, spiritual turn that comes along with that, which is what he's criticizing when he says, you know, all these libertarians and their selfish individualism is this like uh, neoliberal, um, like, you know, as, as, uh, as Andy said, like a narco capitalist, um, you know, feeling of like, I'm the one that's important. You know, it doesn't really matter everyone around me. The only way that I can really improve myself is, or improve the world around me is to improve myself which is the point of which is to diffuse kind of the 60s um, and, you know, the radicalist or the radical uh, spirit of the 60s and 70s, as, as Pascal calls it, kind of the 50-year counter-revolution. Um, and to also kind of put this in perspective, too, Ann Richards was the governor at the time, and she was an, uh, kind of an LBG, LBJ kind of um, uh, uh, type of uh, Democrat. Like, like, you know, uh, she was still kind of, you know, still part of the New Deal coalition, but not quite. Uh, but not quite the neoliberal turn that that happened later. Um, it, it was a you know a bit of that that older, and, and I mean you know like, like Ann Richards had like this this certain charm that that like uh, uh, you know. Yeah, I've uh, seen her. I've seen her uh, DNC speech before. Oh, I mean she's great with the whole. He's born with a silver spoon in his uh, cheek. <laughs> you know. No, um, yeah, she she was she was something else, but she she was uh, you know uh, I mean she was my governor while I was there. I. 
uh, left and then Bush came in into office. So I completely missed that. Yeah, well, you know, that's probably for the best. <laughs> I, I, I remember. Um, <laughs> I got it with everybody else. In, in May, I went to Austin uh, for the first time ever. I've never been to Texas and I've never been to Austin, but I ended up taking a vacation down there. Um, and I remember seeing like the Ann Richards Plaza, uh, you know, by like a, I forget which hotel it is, but there's like a, a plaza dedicated to her. And like, I don't know, it's, it's interesting to have heard it's all Ann. these different- It's got two syllables, Ann. <laughs> it's different. It's interesting to have heard stories about all of these big politicians from Texas and like, you know, like the mythology behind them that, that travels up from, um, you know, from, from what they are, the mythologies they really created for themselves, especially in Texas. I think that's a big thing. And uh, to have gone there. Everything's and, bigger in Texas. Yeah. Every- <laughs> it really is. I mean, that's not, that's not an exaggeration. I, I mean, like, like uh, I remember because um, uh, I moved from Texas to Connecticut and, and I went to a Burger King and ordered a chicken sandwich and I was just amazed how small it was. Yeah. Well, so bringing up bringing up LBJ, I guess. Um, I mean, I have the I have the commentary from the from the Kennedy um, assassination guy scene, which was the scene. Can, I, can I just say? Can I just say one thing yeah. before we get off on too big of a tributary from from what we're saying before? Yeah, yeah. You yeah. know, the, uh, again, uh, uh, look, my my ballywick is the uh, the sort of the the artistic, the spiritual, the, the these kinds of uh, uh, transcendental questions, and I think it's something that this movie, even though it's a comedy, even though it's funny, even though we're laughing and these people are somewhat laughable. Um, there's there's two things that they establish like you know first of all the whole idea of the slacker right that's that's against this 50 year neoliberal turn right like i'm i don't want to go to work I, and one guy even says right uh at least i don't make a good living but at least i don't have to work for it and we yeah. get all these and, things and i think that it's and i think that it's it says a lot that he's obviously not from the generation that they're really speaking to in this movie he's kind of from a previous generation yeah, um, you know, I actually disagree that this is just a Gen X movie. I mean, obviously, it was uh, sort of at the time and 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 caused ripples in that way. But we have plenty of older characters representing other aspects of, if not, I mean, you can speak to whether th- those people are real parts of of Austin. But we have the you know the older anarchist. We have the uh, the, the older gentleman with the recorder talking about mourning for all women. We have, uh, you know, the two older women who are sort of like psychics, like this next guy who passes me will, will die. Yeah, that's a that's a that's a pretty amazing um a pretty amazing moment because it happened so fast. Yeah, uh, so we don't. It's not just the voice of this this one particular generation. I think it's showing a strata. Obviously, it's weighted towards where you know who he had access to and what his experience was. But we're seeing this sort of other aspects, and it's I don't think it's a mistake or an accident that. It's a guy talking about the anarchist revolution in Spain um, that, you know, because these are sort of the pre echoes in some way of what they were trying to maybe. Yeah, they were trying no, 100%. to 100 percent. I, I 100 percent. But, but he's that. also the sort of now he's gnarled. Now he's telling lies. Now he's right. So we, we get the sort of dark side. And I, I think it's uh, you shouldn't underestimate the dark side of this movie. There's so much discussion of violence. Right. We have the guy with the video screens, the TV room, which I always love that scene just on its basic AV nerds level. But, uh, you know, he talks about that guy who, uh, um, you know, shot shot himself in front of his thesis committee, which is both hilarious and totally disturbing. Uh, we have the guy at the end who's called the, um, you know, modern Paul Revere saying that we're going to have a, a violent, everyone's going to have guns. And I forget exactly what he's saying. I think I made a note here, but it's like, you know, a weapons giveaway program. He's like, you know, everyone's going to be shot. They're all going to be killed. And, you know, there's yeah, a the, lot of uh, the Mandela, shit. 
The Mandela guy is that one, right? The the one you're talking about with the weapons. Uh, uh, no, he actually does talk about. He talks. He said he says uh, terrorism is the weapon of the week or whatever something along yeah, yeah, those yeah. lines. I'm talking about the very last guy before we get to the uh, great ending, which I want to talk about later. But he's got the megaphone hooked up to his car. He's driving around with the uh, the speakers on top of his car, talking about we're going to give away weapons, and everyone's yeah. going to go out and oh, shoot. Yeah, 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 yeah. Um, when the when the couple is laying in bed, you can overhear on the soundtrack uh, an interview that uh, Geraldo did with this guy who like uh, shot his killed his roommate in the East Village. He was from Texas and like ate her, made a soup out of her body. And I only picked up on that because Dr. Octagon used that as a sample on his great album, Dr. Octagon Ecologist. So I'm like, wait, I recognize that. <laughs> and I looked it up and it's in this interview Geraldo did with this, you know, cannibal killer pre Jeffrey Dahmer. Um, so, you know, so there's a lot of this. Um, I think the film is saying like being weird, being an individual is like it's a good thing, but it can also go really bad. Yeah. Like, and and also, there's a dark side dark. to not being connected on any level to others, except for on this sort of tenuous, I don't know, like we were both into the Smurfs kind of thing. Yeah. Well, I mean, I think you, you glossed over like the, the, the darkest one that they really mentioned, which is, um, the Adonis <laughs> yeah, no, the, the old anarchist is talking about, uh, the Charles Whitman. Um, yes, exactly. Or, the or clock Charles tower. Shooter. Yeah. Which is one of the most, I mean, I think it's overshadowed now by the JFK assassination in Dallas, but like, one of the darkest moments that you know Texas really had was this guy going on. He's to the, the original school shooter, right? I mean, yeah. I mean, up until uh, like when Luby's massacre happened in in uh, ninety one or ninety two. Which one? Um, Luby's was a cafeteria massacre in Texas. No, I gotta uh, catch I up on my massacre. Something people uh, died. Uh, I was in high school at the time, and it was. Uh, uh oh where was it um it wasn't that far from where i was at uh i i was let's put it this way i could get tv stations from that town uh, i think it was in tyler or somewhere around tyler if Jeez. i remember correctly um and, and uh i i remember um like uh the, the austin massacre would always come up uh whenever there was a mass shooting and they were rare back then so so like loopies was kind of a big deal oh yeah we all, we um, also get the uh the 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 person selling the madonna pap smear starts off by saying there was this guy in the freeway she was just blowing people away man it was so crazy oh my god like so yeah. th this she, this she kind of extolling, extolling like this is like the way she yeah. talked about it like it, like it's a tv show which yeah. is like, you know, like, uh, you know, I, this is sort of not to get it too off course, but like 9-11, a lot of our reaction, I was 25 when 9-11 happened. It was just like, I, whoa, that was crazy. Like, you, it's so I remember that from Lone Gunman. Absorb it. Huh? <laughs> what? I remember that from Lone Gunman. <laughs> <laughs> right. Um, but, you know, it, it that it all of our mediation also causes us to treat reality like a TV show. That's yeah, kind of well, film so so what I was gonna say with uh, glossing over the Charles Whitman thing, um, when when uh, when the older anarchist is talking about it, he's not saying like, hey, like you know, if I would if I were there, I would have stopped it. He was pretty much saying, if I was there, I would have joined in. Yeah, he's no, I, I'm sorry, guy. I missed it. Yeah, and he's like, oh, my fucking wife, I had an appointment, like you know, the most important scene of the 1960s, and I wasn't there for it. And you know, it, it's it's fascinating that it is this uh, desensitized. I think um, version of violence that you get throughout this movie because you never really see. And I think that that talking about how you know either that there isn't conflict, there isn't conflict because the conflict that's happening for a lot of these characters, I think, is happening 
through mediated uh, media spaces. You know what I yeah. mean? Like, the conflict is between these people and their own reality. It's the ultimate conflict. And, and some of them are struggling and some of them are just sort of surfing it and saying whatever. Yeah. And it's actually, you know, I mean, we have political assassinations. We Right. He talks about the uh, McKinley assassination. He's like the only political assassination. Well, if you don't count, <laughs> if you don't count Lincoln and well, maybe JFK remains. Yeah. <laughs> it, like all of these things are um, connected. But he's like, that's I, the only anarchist. That right. Really the only anarchist. Like, I mean, at least, at least him, at least he seems to have an ethos right like it's better to, i think to have a sort of twisted ethos than the girl who walks up is like oh my god it was so crazy they were just blowing people away man right like that's just yeah that's the nihilism of you know just you know like you said desensitize just the next high yeah play it go yeah this, this is um so this is link ladder's commentary on it and i really i mean I, I usually don't listen to full DVD commentaries or, you know, video commentaries on things because like, no, I wish I would have heard this too. I might go back and try to find this. This looks awesome. It's on, it's on YouTube. Um, I think I sent it to the, to the group chat that we originally had, but, um, Great. A YouTube, and then on criterion, uh, criterion channel, they have the entire crew talking about it too. Oh, like sweet. a whole movie. So I, there's, there's a lot of different, um, commentaries on this movie, which is really cool. We should record this for now. You know, movie is about the idea of whether to act or not act. And a lot of it's purely theoretical. Like, so he's talking about, you know, if there were a hundred like him around today, they could change the world, which, you know, I kind of would believe. You know, we're always really quick to categorize and judge others. We give ourselves a lot of latitude to have various views and, you know, ambiguities and, you know, all kinds of conflicting ideas can be housed in ourselves but in other people we want it really simple you know at least simple enough to label characterize and then of course in a media free market way that becomes commodified and exploited so it's the opposite of real anarchism charles whitman there was a what's that joking crimes and misdemeanors what what is What's comedy? Tragedy plus time. <laughs> the Whitman thing had been in 66. Here it's 89. It had been enough years that, I mean, there's still survivors and people who were there that day. But I, I like the way tragedy kind of takes on a myth. And that everyone who was living in Austin that day has to have some relation with that event. For those of you who don't know, that was the moment when Charles Whitman former Eagle Scout who lived only a few blocks from where we're at right here, packed up a bunch of guns, went up on the top of that tower and kind of ushered in the era of the mass murderer, but uh, kind of put Austin on the map there. I remember as a little kid, I remember it happening vaguely. You know, well, actually, I think the most important thing he said there, which really resonated with why I think I love this movie so much is you know, a, a a polemicist filmmaker, you know, is, I think, a lesser filmmaker. You know, it, somebody with a sort of screed or an ideology that they're just trying to flog, even if I agree with the ideology, it always comes off as being somewhat less than the full weight of, of an artistic endeavor. But his... his I, I, I agree and disagree with that, but I... We, I, can, we can sidebar that. But I think what, what he said about judging others... You know, it takes a real artist to be able to try to portray things in, if not objective, 
than at least an intersubjective way, like a way of putting himself in the point of view of people who he may not actually be. And uh, I hear what you're saying, Andy, about like the, the voice being very similar in some places. I agree that's there. But there is also, I think, a, an essential sort of, um, you know, love that he has for all of these people, even the weirdest ones, even the worst ones. Um, and that part of it is a very healing thing to watch a movie that's taking for its subject a real, you know, spiritual malaise problem as we're talking about. Um, and that fact that he said, we all really, you know, we forgive ourselves like that is, I think, what watching movies is actually one of the best reasons to do so. Or the, the, the good ones to, you know, build empathy, to be able to be more empathetic towards those in situations, not like our own experience. And there's not just a love, I think. I mean, it, it goes even deeper than that. It's, it's kind of begging not to forget these people that he's kind of putting throughout the movie, like whether they're pretentious, whether they're. Um, violent, whether they crave this kind of uh, sensationalized violence. Like, don't forget about these people. Don't give up on these people. There's a culture war going on right now in Texas, which is between kind of this Ron Paul um, selfish individual spirit, I guess. And, you know, Austin, which is still very weird and still, I mean, still is very weird. Um, very, I guess, liberal in, in some senses. I mean, not in a good way, I don't think <laughs> now, because it's kind of a lot of people from Brooklyn are getting enticed to come to Austin is kind of gentrifying in, in a bad way. But in, in the same sense, I think this movie would still make that point. Like, don't forget about these people, like the natural weird people in Austin. That yeah, and I, I, don't those, people don't, those people aren't limited to one geographical area. They may have conglomerated there for a place in time for a brief moment. But um, it's a it's a it's a mind state. Right. It's a it's a it's a spiritual. I keep saying that word, but it's that it's that certain kind of vibration that hopefully we can keep alive. I mean, the last 30 years has not been kind to to that 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 little flicker of a flame um and it has gone much darker into the whole like you know if donald trump could represent the you know the outsider in that same way he's the the sort of the uh, apotheosis of that dark turn away from you know society yeah. but only in a bad way right like it, the the other thing i think which is great about that quote that you just played of his is uh, you have to talk about how this is, you know, it's like one, one of the concepts in, in Gestalt therapy. I don't know if you've ever done any of that or read about that is like, you know, people in the modern sort of, uh, sort of, uh, you know, I don't want to call it this sort of, I keep saying malaise, but this, our sort of modern problems are that we have the gas and the brake on at the same time. Right. So we're, we're expending a lot of energy and going nowhere. Uh, and his whole thing about like, are these people going to actually do anything or are they just going to drink six beers and debate the sort of, you know, the linguistics of the Smurfs or whatever it is that, you know, and it's, I think it is related to what you were, you said before that 50 year neoliberal term, because there is nowhere to, you know, she says, uh, uh how, or the guy says, how are you going to know when you're going to, what you're going to do? Well, when I hear the call, right. Yeah. And, and, and I think, I think to there's... hear somebody just even say that now you're just like, call screw you get a job go work at popeyes you know like yeah you don't have and the right to wait for the call and i think Jack that in the box. I think that, that Jack in the texas box. yeah texas thank you i'll update <laughs> where that um where that uh whataburger go get a <laughs> whataburger <laughs> no um, those in I, tallahassee but i i think that uh i think that you know where, where where that where that generational divide does come in within this movie is the, the point that they're making that, you know, the two older or two of the older characters obviously are the older anarchist who's, you know, exposed as a, as a hypocrite and a liar, but a lovable one, like 
regardless of what violence that he has, he's still kind of like this iconic um, older anarchist that has the fighting spirit, has the radical spirit, and hasn't lost it even uh, through all of these failures. And the other guy is obviously the, the the stepfather, or the guy that hates his stepfather, I mean, in the back of the car, that does that whole um, brilliant speech about, like, how, how, you know, he might not live good, but at least he, uh, I mean, the guy that, the call guy. So um, I, I think that in, in that sense, it's the older generation that's kind of failed to bring about this radical turn, speaking to a younger generation and telling them, like, you guys are the ones that could bring about these changes. Don't lose that within this um, turn towards selfish individualism, this turn towards libertarianism. Don't let yourself drift away. Keep that weirdness. Keep that individualism that doesn't, that the individualism that doesn't necessarily, uh, or that doesn't hurt other people. That, that the individualism where you're like, I'm an individual who's out to help the world and we can change the world this way. Well, it's like a, just an alternative collective, I guess. You know, if you're the anarchist mentality, which I believe in or, you know, not fun, not formally, but, I, you know, the, is that if people left to their own devices with their basic needs met are generally willing to help each other and willing to act in a collective way. Um, it's just that there's so many uh, sort of, uh, uh, I guess, atmospheric conditions that don't allow that uh, and aren't to certain people's benefit. Um, but I think he is saying keep that, you know, that that mo that mode of that whatever you want to call it, I keep saying flicker of a flame, that little bit of gas in, in the tank. But, you know, I also kept thinking of um, all of uh, um, Adam Curtis's sort of really uh, good takedowns of individualism and how it was perverted and twisted and it became which soda do you drink is how you express yourself. You know, I was talking to Andy before on the chat about the guy wearing the Batman shirt and, you know, all the just all the pop culture stuff like this is this is how I express myself. I wear the same shirt that 50,000 other people today are, yeah. are wearing. Um, but that's because I'm not, you know, I'm wearing my my JFK shirt or, you know, like these these ways of identifying that are actually reductive. And unfortunately, it does feel like it's a um, it's like a pressure valve that society built in to contain or to move this this anarchist spirit at, coming from the 60s. And and Adam Curtis has done an amazing job kind of chronicling that. I mean, he has. Um you know, so much, so much stuff that he's done about like how um, the idea of like individual, almost like individual colors to express yourself on different products, like consumer products. Were, just the, just were, the commodification of your individualism in general, yeah. however it, even the guy, I love the guy also, my, my second favorite scene we touched on it was the guy with all the TVs, right? The TV guy and how he says like, you know, man, a, a, an image is so much better than the real event. Like he's like the, the total metastasis of the of, of all the rest of us, right? He's just like, he is completely absorbed in his TV world. And when I first watched this, maybe I was in my late teen, early 20s, probably early 20s. I was like, oh, I want that room. That's so cool. <laughs> now I see it, it's just like, holy shit. Like, you know, he is literally strapped to his TV. Uh, yeah, rewatching re that scene today, he, he talks Would about Would you like me to take one to your back? No. <laughs> Although these days they're a little bit lighter, maybe like a twenty-inch flat screen could tape no problem. But you know that yeah, I, I could I could tape like an iPad. Uh. But he also says, um, take this uh, this tape and, and disseminate it on the your pirate TV channel. Like yeah. it was like the original, you know, four chan or something, right? Just like this this way of getting stuff out. And actually, I remember being traded, you know, VHS tapes of that guy who shot himself in his. Uh, you know the press conference that guy you know that one there were these like faces of death there were these things that 
got traded on the, you know, not the dark web, but the dark mailbox. I don't know, you know, whatever, yeah. I don't yeah. know where they came from. The, but, those prank phone calls too, that, that just got released uh, officially. The Jerky um, Boys? No, no, before the Jerky Boys. The two uh, bar tape? Yes, yes, the two bar tape. I had them all. I had them all. Yeah. Well, but, but like, well even, like, but even, I, I mean, talked about this. But I'm just saying, like, he is, yeah, he is the, he is this, like, I don't know, he's sort of the fulcrum of the entire m movie. Uh, you know, he, yeah. he, he's talking about uh, dormant potential, uh, you know, and, and uh, that, that guy, the, the, the thesis committee guy who shot people, he's his whole rant. It's like the rant within the rant. Well, he's he's also talking about how he saw someone literally get a knife in their back and wander out of a um, bar. And he couldn't even like he's like, I couldn't even like, you know, uh, rewind it again because I didn't it wasn't on the TV. Like I couldn't like I couldn't really like change anything about it. I couldn't change the color like. I really think he's the spokesman of our generation. That guy, uh, you know, I mean, well, he's my, my generation. I'm 46 now. So I think that that, you know, we, we grew up with TV. Like the other generation, the baby boomers, they had TV. They sort of was invented when they were kids. But by the time we came along, we were just, I was raised by TV, Sesame Street, Electric Company, you know, since the time I could turn on a TV. Literally the first book I was ever told, not told that, the story is the first thing I ever was proven to have been able to read was the TV guide. My mom saw me read and it said, Bugs Bunny, Channel 8. I, I had the time wrong, but, uh, you know, so I, I, I identify with that, on, you know, in a dark way. And it's it's a really it's a cautionary tale. So to me, this is, you know, we talked about earlier conflict. There is some serious problem with with this scene, um, or yeah. what he, what he portrays. But also just side note, I made a note on the tape. One of his tapes it says pickpocket which is one of the great uh robert brisson movies uh french filmmaker who is just like one of the ultimate high poets of the soul so the fact that it, there's that and then there's like nuclear explosions and all this like visceral sort of um stuff i is guarantee so you he's the guy who made the uh the robert tilton tape of just like editing him uh together and then uh superimposing fart noises on top of it so it's just Wait, like what there was this tape that was going around Texas in the 90s. Um, and I remember my comic shop got it. And, and the guy who ran it was this uh, older guy, Dennis. Um, I, I'll, I'll dig up a, a sweet article like uh, right before he passed away. Um, he got he finally got to go see a Cubs game in Chicago, which is absolutely beautiful. You're getting um, that Texas twang back in your voice. Oh, I yeah. yeah, yeah get a filter. When, when the Texas stories come on, we need to put on like a filter or something like that. <laughs> Like you, have a, you have a button or like a flashing light or just like, like a flashing. giant 10 gallon hat comes down on your head <laughs> but but anyways um uh but i remember dennis had uh th this um this video robert tilton and he'd just be like let us now pray and he like close his eyes you just hear <laughs> like like as he's like you know got his eyes scrunched up trying to pray real hard to jesus and it's just it's the childish thing but like it's it's just it's that's the kind of thing that would come out of those like little video things where, where you would uh and i remember like like the quality of this was so bad robert tilton looked purple because it was like a copy of a copy of a copy of a copy so <laughs> and just you know but like like that that's that thing i mean i don't know this true. guy was trading tapes of a you know a guy who shot all of his thesis people so it was, it's a little bit darker i think what's being portrayed in in, in this movie True. but i, I think there's something like, to what you're saying in terms of this sort of culture jammer kind of um mentality right but but i think there's there's part of that in there and, and like uh you know i wasn't um i i left texas when i was uh when i was uh 15 so um 
uh, you know, I didn't quite come to age, uh, you know, fully to, uh, you know, I wasn't quite an adult whenever I left. Um, well, so they also, I mean, within that same scene, he also says that guy looks like John Hinckley, which is another kind of moment within that era, which is, you know, Reagan getting shot um, and yep. you know, the Jodie Foster obsessed uh, would be assassin that, you know, is another moment I think that's kind of everybody experiences the same way. And actually, uh, it's funny that you mentioned that there's a sort of a spider web between Pickpocket. Pickpocket was an inspiration for Paul Schrader's screenplay for Taxi Driver. And Taxi Driver supposedly was somehow an inspiration for Hinckley shooting, uh, you know, Reagan to impress Jodie Foster, who was in Taxi Driver. So yeah. I don't know if that was neat. It, it, it just occurs to me. Was there is there a political assassination of the past 25 years they didn't mention? Or, or shooting. It seems like they crammed in so many now that we're going through them all. Well, there's, I mean, I think there's a time when um, I was, I was listening to someone talk about how Carter almost got assassinated. Someone tried to assassinate Carter. There was multiple times where Ford almost got assassinated. All right. So, so there's there's a few, there's, there's there was a few that bunny who tried to kill Carter too. Don't forget about that. <laughs> the killer bunny. The yeah, he, he was like out fishing, and this this bunny tried to swim across the lake and like attacked his boat. And there's actually a photo of like Carter looking terrified. No, you've never seen that. You've never seen that. Photo. No. Um, yeah, no. Carter got Carter got swarmed by a swamp rabbit, and he came back after being in uh, after being in Georgia. And it was at the time of his, of his presidency where he was going to lose to Reagan. Like you know, it's going towards the end of his pre uh, presidency where um, he was already seen as kind of being like an ineffectual leader. So the swamp rabbit became like um, like a sign of his ineffectuality. Because they're like okay. even like you can't even fight off a rabbit. All right. Well, Rick Linklater didn't get all those, but he got a lot of them in there. I mean, you know, the whole the whole assassination and conspiracy thing, right? It sort of is this. It's the dark side of, um, you know, doing your own research. Things that like it's so obvious now that it's metastasized, gotten yeah. so much worse. Well, the thing is, the swamp rabbit's true, and, and the uh, us being on Mars since uh, May twenty second isn't, as far as I know. All right, so so this is another scene that I wanted to bring up into here that I have kind of a um, a clip that I cut from from this. Um, yeah, like um, he the, the whole thing about climate change they kind of get completely on point, and um, it's really interesting that like you know talking about how within a hundred years like things are going to be too uh, hot for us even to function in. So I, I had to grab that that um, that part of the the commentary. What's funny is in 1989, when we filmed this, July of 89, here we're talking about global warming, greenhouse effect, 100 years from now. I'm out of here. Not so, my friend. Not so. No. Government's setting on the fact that it's 10 to 20 years maximum. It's getting hotter, don't you think? It's funny how paranoia works. You know, paranoia in plus 20 years equals the reality, you know? So what Philip K. Dick or someone thought was paranoia future is kind of the world we're living in and what he's talking about is you know kind of undeniable at this point so we're back then it was just kind of a crackpot theory it's so funny in the culture how something that seems marginal and ridiculous is actually you know more or less true it's just ahead of its time and i think as i thought of the content of this movie i liked the idea of unaccredited, you know, information. See, this entire operation is being funded by the profits from the Medellin drug cartel. This, to me, was the real stuff. You can't believe the news. You can't believe official media outlets. But 
I think the actual buzz of life is, uh, you know, coming from the conspiracy theorist, the schizophrenic, you know, that's going to be the truth. You know, it's not going to be on the evening news. I just realized I need to go, I need to go buy some ivermectin. <laughs> you know, that's one of the good things about that is that this guy, he says like eight crazy things and two things that turned out to be right. So it's not, you know, it's, it's this wonderful thing where he's clearly someone this guy doesn't really want to talk to, but he sort of does keep him engaged, right? The, the guy he's talking to. So there's that same feeling of, um, you know, the loving creator who is not judging this guy super harshly and his, his commentary speaks to that. Like, well, this guy turned out, one of the things he said turned out to actually be right. Uh, you know, well, so two, of the, two of the things he said kind of turned out to be right. What was the our first thing? thing? All right. So the first thing he said that the turned meddling out to be, drug cartel. No, the first thing he said that turned out to be right was that, I mean, the, the climate change, global warming thing. But then when he talks about, um, and obviously this part doesn't turn out to be right, but he said, oh, we've already been on Mars. But like we do have Elon Musk and Jeff Bezos and all of these billionaires trying to get to Mars now um, in order to escape um well, no, because Elon Musk constantly talks about colonizing Mars as an escape from climate change, yeah. which is what this guy is predicting is going to happen, that climate change is going to happen, global warming, and then... Oh, oh I see. You're saying the, the mentality of like, well, we'll fuck up this planet, just move on to the next one. Yeah. Yeah. So, yeah. so that so that spirit that kind of gets channeled through that. And sure. if you're someone and if you're someone that's kind of already paranoid about that stuff, like the, the idea that we're already there kind of, um, you know, probably isn't true, but like the idea that we're already there might come to you pretty quickly you know what i mean like like oh if we're talking you know, about this is the, the this is the this is the problem you know it's like when you when you just are um uh let's just say a solid citizen like you're part of a group a church a religion uh you know you you kind of can go to bed at night you know what's what right you know what what to do you know right you're given these roles as soon as you start to have some freedom it's also a little chaotic, right? You could go wrong. You could do the, something destructive. You don't know where you're at. You could be grasping at straws to make sense of the world. Uh, so it's like a double-edged sword, you know? Freedom comes also with alienation, right? And that alienation gives you a certain kind of freedom. So this movie is, I think, very clear about the double-edged sword uh, with being weird. And we keep saying weird, but as a uh, maybe as a synonym for just free, right? Not, not constrained by societal pressure. Yeah, and, and kind of living this alternative, uh, I hate the alternative lifestyle, sounds like a very 90s, um, <laughs> a 90s. It just uh, means you tie a flannel around your waist and wear a black concert t-shirt. But. Yeah, but um, uh, no, but it's kind of these alternative subcultures that exist within this mainstream, um, in the case of Texas, obviously, um, conservative, uh, you know, libertarian in, in that sense of the word, like, you know, like asshole right-wing culture that Linklater's clearly clearly doesn't have any um, love for or any affinity for and clearly is is making a movie to challenge that um that notion about texas so you go on yeah no so i think that that's i think that that's a very an interesting part of it yeah and he even says like when you hear him that's why i made that joke about ivermectin but he you know he says like you can't trust the media you can't trust, and it's true you know like but then is it like, well, then I guess whatever my aunt wrote on Facebook, that must be true. Well, no, there's you, you, you've got to, you know, anyone who's read a Noam Chomsky book uh, realizes that the media has uh, its faults and is uh, pulling the party line. But then what's the alternative? 
right? How do you know what if what you're getting is real? Like that becomes the really hard part. Yeah. The burden is on us. And, you know, we'd much rather, I think, sit around, drink some beers and debate the merits of the Smurfs. <laughs> so I think that this brings us to the JFK um, scene, um, which is, you know, I think because this is Texas, because this is a movie about Texas, um, I, I think that it, it says a lot about the fact that, you know, just 20 years before this movie is being filmed or um, I mean, the Warren Report, I think, comes out in 60, 69 or 68, like around there. I'm pretty sure. Um, the Warren Report? Did that report, come out much later? 64. No, the Warren Report came out pretty pretty close to like, okay. in the same. Um, I'll look up when the Warren Report came out. But like they're kind of at the center of this controversy, right? Like um, in this clip that I'm going to play, uh, Linklater says that um, that said that they kind of think of JFK as a as an honorary Texan because he died there. Like so, a lot of the stuff about different conspiracies, a lot of the stuff about you know um, the sources that you're getting versus the sources that you're understanding, really boils down to this JFK. Uh, you know, conspiracy or the JFK assassination controversy, which plays such a big role, I think, in, in the mentality of Texans at this point. Hard to pick favorite scenes, but in a way, this one's always been one of my favorites, if not favorite. It's simply because I think where John Slate, AKA Johnny Rat, um, takes this. He was actually a JFK, he's a friend of mine, for you know, several years before this, we had been, and we made T-shirts together. He's a big film guy, just a lot of knowledge about a lot of things. He's kind of an archivist, you know, academic. And uh, <laughs> Sarah's so smooth in this scene too. She, without being too condescending, she's she's just kind of right in there. But all this really came from John. He is kind of obsessed. He has these books, and he ran a tour up in Dallas. Saw the shooting, you know, it wasn't he'd do one on the anniversary of the, the shooting. He did a little tour and he had an actual book called Conspiracy of Go Go. So, so much of this came from him. He has this kind of wicked sense of humor about it all, but he was also pretty serious about it all. I, don't, I could never tell what he thought was the most funny or the most, you know. So, but it's important at the scene that he doesn't think he's being funny. He's being just obsessive, you know, about what he's passionate about. I love the names of all these books. That's why I insisted it. Forgive my grief. Forgive my grief. <laughs> oh, gosh. Texas bears the scar of shame, I think, for the JFK thing. We'll never quite get over, but at least we can have fun with it. I mean, he's an honorary Texan at this point. If you are born or die in Texas or have a long layover in Dallas, I guess you're an honor. You're a Texan. So, you know, we, we in Texas consider JFK ours, you know, just cause he had one bad experience here. Oswald didn't like his eggs and use bad language. My goodness. This is good. But of course, then there's what my book, you know, I like the way that he would have a, um, written his own book. You know, like he's working on fun. When people say people in Slacker are idle, I, this is proof positive. It's quite the opposite. I mean, he's very active. He's writing a book. Everyone in this movie has something going on. They're in a band. They're doing something. I mean, it's all rather under the radar, unaccredited, has no place in our uh, free market society, in our raging economy. And yet I liked all this activity. And this film was of that. You know, it had no place in the film economy or in the entertainment business at first, you know, but 
it was amazing to me, and this is how threatened the mainstream always is by any alternative hint of alternative ways of living that isn't about money or progress, that it quickly became a negative. Slackers were lazy. They didn't do anything. They, did, they were apathetic. All these words started popping up. And I don't think you see laziness in the movie so much as you see energy and a lot of thought, intelligence. They could go in a lot of different directions, potentially. And I was always resentful, like, how can you judge these people? You're only seeing them for four or five minutes out of their lives. And, you know, who are you to judge their lives? You don't know. I was operating camera on this day. That was always a problem in Slacker. We, I sort of insisted everybody in the crew be in the cast, too. We'd sort of uh, get in trouble every now and then. And, the, you know, we'd run short on the crew. I was proud when Oliver Stone did his JFK. When you see Ruby, he's got a dog in his arm the whole time. So, see, we were there first. Of course, we have LBJ hovering in the background. We're back at Les Amis, that cafe behind our house. Newman, who ran the place for 30 years, let us use it. I think we we turned off the uh, freezers and stuff for, for sound, you know, and ruined a bunch of ice cream. I felt bad about that. I love that commentary that again it's another great example of him saying like these are these real people like i'm letting them be who they actually are i love them in all of their weirdness i'm not judging them i'm not critiquing them i'm letting them do their thing their crazy weird off-kilter thing and it's wonderful and that's a great point he makes that these people are full of energy but that's what i mean by the gas and the break there's like there's nowhere for it to go in that societal sort of capitalistic way, but they've got all of this gas. Yeah, and that was great. I, I, I should say that I was wrong about the Warren uh, the Warren report. It was 1964 that it came don't out. Don't beat don't beat yourself up. <laughs> but I, I I kind of I love that scene. That's my favorite scene in the movie. No, so I was kind of I've kind of been on this uh, JFK conspiracy binge um, because of uh, I did the JFK episode of This Is Revolution. That's not why I. I, I'm all, I've been on the binge. I've been on the binge long before, and then I picked that movie because I've been on the JFK conspiracy binge. But like, it's interesting that you know the book that he first that she's first holding is um, Rush to Judgment, the Mark Lane book. And uh, right that was also that, a documentary, I think. Yeah, it was a documentary where they let the people like they let the people that didn't get to be talked like that didn't get to speak for the Warren Commission or that had their uh, testimonies changed. They let them speak for themselves. Um, so yeah, so I, 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 I don't know. I, I just really love that scene and I, and I love the, um, I mean, I think that it's, I think that it's true that what he, what he's talking about in, in the commentary that, you know, um, I've, obviously any, any, um, establishment media and establishment sources really jumped onto the JFK thing and any hint that somebody was, um, possibly raising other, other potential, um, other potential possibilities they they kind of shut down instantaneously like there's the famous um i, I don't remember if it was jim garrison or, or mark lane but somebody went on um somebody went on um johnny carson and they were showing the images from like the the assassination and johnny carson knocked the knocked the images down on live tv and they handed him a whole bunch of these different questions to um like a, a bunch of different questions to to answer um, or a bunch of different, a bunch of different answers for whatever questions or whatever answers the guy might throw towards him because they pre-screened all of the questions. And in the middle of the interview, it went off the rails, and he starts showing the things on actual TV. Is there footage um, of this existing? Yeah, there is. Wow. Um, I, like I think I think it's Mark Lane, the guy that wrote uh, Rush to Judgment. Oh, okay. 
um, went on. Johnny that wasn't Carson. in the documentary though. That was, this was we're talking. No, no, this after. is all this is all stuff that happened after. Yeah, after right. that. Um, but you know the crackdown on it. I, I think that in some cases, if if they had just let the pe- like let people talk about um, their theories about it like a little bit more openly, like there there there's a chance that they might have still gone with the Warren Commission opinion. You know what I mean? Like it's the crackdown around those alternative theories that's kind of allowed it to f- be fueled for another 50 years. And it was kind of, you know, I don't, I don't know what sort of conspiracy theories people had about the Lincoln assassination, but in the mediated age of television where somebody actually filmed this, uh, you know, it was like the epicenter for all the, the conspiracy, the, the idea of the conspiracy theory, right? Isn't that a CIA coin term? Uh, yeah. To, to throw people off the, the scent of a, an alternative explanation. Yeah. And interestingly, like, there's all these claims that the CIA presented um, uh, all these famous newspapers and famous columnists with, like, the, the you know, different um, debunking points. Like, cause, and, which turned out to be true that uh, after the fact, um, like, all of, like, the, the yeah, liberal papers, I guess, and the liberal mainstream press was shown to be a lot of times funded by the CIA like throughout the 1950s and 1960s. Sure. The, the Museum of Modern Art was funded by the CIA. There was all kinds yeah. of outreach, cultural outreach uh, in, the, in the, the Cold War. And this JFK assassination, you know, it's... Wait, so the CIA had sold my book? <laughs> they what? Conspiracy, conspiracy um, go-go. Yeah, I was published uh, in a book called APB Artists Against Police Brutality. And in the MoMA gift shop, they sold it for uh, for a hot minute. And it was like really freaking cool because that's, you know, probably the closest my yeah, work in my lifetime well, we, will ever we, be at the we can't, we can't listen to anything you say now. You've clearly been funded yeah. by the CIA. Uh, so, so, yeah, it must have been funded by the CIA, you know. I think the idea was like show the Soviet Union that we're, we'll do anything. We'll, we'll, we'll put a block. Uh, a paint of a block of just the shape and call it art. See, we're crazy. Yeah, it's the madman. Yeah, and, and the CIA, the CIA famously funded Jackson Pollock for that reason, and had a large uh, Jackson Pollock painting in the CIA headquarters at Langley because they they were trying to show the Soviet Union that like, look, artistic it was a psyop. Here. Yeah, well, I mean, it's also just you know, it's it's a psyop, but it's also like just the Cold War like mentality of like, look, anyone can do anything here, and we'll show you that by like literally funding like a splat of paint on a. Right. <laughs> on a canvas which is pretty hilarious because i was in uh i was in east hampton um earlier this summer um for my grandma's 90th, 90th well no his his house is there mm-hmm. and if you if you go down on the road you can see the tree he hit with his car when he died but um it's like right on the main Look road at you just like the girl you man you could see where his head hit the window and blood it was so <laughs> cool man and it was just like one of his paintings it was a spl- <laughs> his last act was a splatter why did they stay there oh, okay. <laughs> Oh Jesus boy. Christ! We're um, all doomed. We're all doomed. That's the end. Yeah, wrap it up. Wrap it up, folks. Human race, all set. Yep. <laughs> yeah, pretty much. No, no. <laughs> Here's the thing: art is always going to be about the weirdos, the outsiders. Like, it, even if it's about the sort of the, the content is not as explicitly about weirdos. Art is always, hopefully, if it's doing the job that I want it to do, is going to be about some sort of fringe way of thinking, some different idiosyncratic, uh, you know, alternative thought. Even if it's not some part of some movement or some theory, just that one person's completely, uh, you know, individualistic way of seeing the world, 
Um, and, uh, you know, I never really I, I've gotten so much more respect for Rick Linklater listening to his commentaries here and just watching this movie over because he went on to have a you know pretty interesting career. Right. He made a few movies that I think are like pretty good. But I don't think anything is conceptually as important or as uh, radical at all compared to this. Uh, you know, he he goes, like you I said, mean, right to the, what's that? I, I might argue the uh, the attempt at the aesthetics of. Uh, uh, Waking Life. Oh my God, my favorite Philip K. Dick book. Um, Scanner. Scanner yeah, Scanner. No, Darkly. no um, he, he Scanner directed, Darkly. Yeah, he directed Scanner, Scanner Darkly. Darkly. Um, yeah. I, I don't know. You know, I, 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 I that think, movie really, I, really stoned, I and I think I just only... tuned out because it was just too much. But uh, I don't I watched I, it. I watched yeah, it three I, times. I, think... I watched it three times earlier this year because we did the. Um, you were on it too. The the stream with Ben we yes. did on on Scanner Darkly. Um, so I watched, but, but I think it. technically it was as ambitious as this movie. But I don't well, think. But I would put the other one. Was. I would put the other one, Waking Life, more into that. That's that's I think maybe my other second favorite one. It's also animated. Okay. It's also several stories of each person sort of telling something that then becomes. It's like a little vignettes. Um, but I, I don't know. CI <laughs> Andy. I just <laughs> I just saw that CI Andy. Uh, busted. You're a pig. <laughs> Um, the CIA was like, the CIA was like, listen, we're gonna take down the stream, and they heard Andy's story, and they're like, you know what? You know what's better? We're gonna label him CI Andy. That's and just the. Right? That's the. That's just the. That's how we got back. The, the plausible deniability. <laughs> you, you know, you know the story of uh, of Alan Dulles and uh, MK Ultra. The reason that it was named MK Ultra because the, the Ultra and MK Ultra is for ultra ultra secretive. But like he was like, oh man, that sounds cool. I can't help but name it MK Ultra, which you know pretty much every other CIA um, program during that time was like given like a, a name that was supposed to be innocuous, and they couldn't help but give it the MK Ultra name or MK Ultra Secret. That was where they gave all the acid to people and tried to like reprogram. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. And and they were giving acid to themselves. Like uh, Gottlieb, the main person in charge of it, like repeatedly dosed himself with acid dosed his friends dosed his family dosed random people he met at bars that never recovered from it it was it was an insane oh, the uh, best thing though is he he would dose people and then like uh there was actually this long cia off where they would watch people have sex while they're on acid yeah no they had a they had a um they were operating like an alex gray painting <laughs> they, were, they were operating like a, a brothel type thing where they would watch people have sex while they were um your government dollars hard at work yeah where was that? Where was that miniseries? That was it. Wormwood. Uh, Wormwood. The one about uh, um, uh, Frank. Little victims. Frank Miller or something. The the guy that was a uh, he jumped out of a window or was pushed out of a window, depending on who you believe about the story. Yeah. Um, yeah. After being dosed with acid and realizing that he had ruined the lives of a lot of different people, I've actually wanted to do that for an episode of this. Uh, with, even though it's jump a jump out a window. Oh, do yeah. wormwood. <laughs> Jump out of the tenth story window of a. Take of a, a lot of acid and see if you can fly. <laughs> Take off from the ground first. What a dick. Sorry. I ahead. um another I Texas kind of, saint. A few weeks ago, I went to uh, I went to Izu, and kind of somewhat accidentally ended up getting dosed with acid, and it was a little bit too much of a, not accidentally, but. <laughs> accidentally I had a, I had too a, much. I had a. I had a um, a nice little uh, MK Ultra rave going on. I don't know. Never Good mind. for you. <laughs> Good All right, for so you. so this is this is. I know you want. You said you want to talk about the end of uh, at the end of the movie. This is um, Richard Linklater's commentary on the end of the movie. 
um, to start that conversation. Well, off. maybe I should say what I say first, and then we'll see if I got it right. Okay. But listen, I'll just say my take of it was, here's a guy who loves filmmaking, who believes that the exuberance, the sort of freedom and the sort of outlet that he found in filmmaking, because he's clearly not a slacker to make this goddamn amazing military operation of a movie to all fit together. But he wouldn't have done it, I don't think, if he didn't have that lust for, you know, for the freedom and the, the, the joy, that just the ecstasy that is depicted here very sort of deliberately and, and sort of uh, obviously... Uh, for making films with his friends, just running around. And, you know, obviously it's a little silly, the throwing of the camera up. But I just thought it's such a perfect ending to a movie that is as much about moving pictures in the mediated sort of landscape that we all grew up in and saying that, you know what, for all of these problems that the, the media creates, there is something wonderful and beautiful still possible through making images and making media in this way. So I just thought it was such an uplifting, wonderful, sweet ending uh, and especially, you know, as a filmmaker, it's just like, yes, the, the restorative healing power of the of the cinema, it does still exist. Even if once in a while a Super 8 camera catches, you know, a guy's head being blown off who happens to be the president. But still, there's a way out. Go ahead. It was just a really kind of creepy experience to, in a, such a short amount of time, the first people I was talking to at those festivals and you know, they were kind of fascinated with like the narrative structure of it or like they like the dialogues. They like some of the information in the movie, kind of the vibe of it, but particularly like the storytelling, the fact that it didn't have any story in, in the traditional sense. And they talked that way about Doug's book too. Generation X didn't have like a traditional three act structure. It was really a lot of digressive monologues and ideas and with footnotes kind of in the margins and these different definitions it was just kind of a wonderful experimental novel you would say in the way that slacker sort of an experimental movie and so people were kind of into that thing they were like oh that's interesting this is interesting and they were digging into the material but god it seemed almost instantaneous that gave way to when it got a little more national it was the questions like well i haven't seen your movie but don't you think that the the new generation thinks this you know it's like uh excuse me <laughs> what's there to talk about you know or like, I haven't read Generation X or seen your movie, but would you like to talk on Nightline tonight about um, <laughs> something to do with, you know, 20-something people? It was just all kind of ridiculous. So it was kind of painful, actually, to see what I thought couldn't be parodied. To me, it was, you know, there's a notion of like no wave or <laughs> there's no style. There was nothing to be parodied because it wasn't so identifiable. But what I thought wasn't identifiable as in neutral, like, say, the fashion, the way the underclass sort of dresses. Meanwhile, that was sort of being commodified and that was sort of being studied and articulated and kind of quickly sold back. You know, there were flannel shirts soon going for $65, like designer flannel shirts. Like that happened so fast. It was kind of scary. But I mean, I was very aware of it. I thought I grabbed further than that, but um. Oh my God, you're teasing me! I want to see that. I'm gonna go get that. If you it's not. It's, they have it. On, it's on YouTube. Like the the full thing is on YouTube. Yeah. Um. 
but yeah, I don't know. I thought I thought that was, that part of it was really interesting. I thought about I, like how much he thought about commodification throughout the, the making of this is, is interesting because so much. I mean, it's true that like so much of well, everything is sold back as a product. Like you know, reading uh, capitalist realism lately, like anti-capitalism sold back to you as a commodified product. Like yeah, you, I got a book from the Baffler that I guess was '98 or so called commodify your descent i mean uh, uh this is a, a a clearly defined school of thought that is obvious now to everybody who's paying attention uh you will be sold back what it is that you yourself had as a genuine experience and now we're just getting the photocopy of the photocopy of the photocopy of the photocopy yeah in, in terms of culture and and that's the part of the movie i think that um hasn't just gotten i mean hasn't just you know uh, played out, but it's been, you know, made so much worse by this like online social media culture is that not just the instant co commodification of everything, because that that is definitely a part of it. Um, but also just, you know, that that firsthand experience turning into secondhand experience. And then but like the way that it's done and the way that like these citizen journalists, as I said earlier, or, you know, like uh, someone with a camera filming something like you take that for granted. You know what I mean? Like you take that for granted that that's a primary source and you're watching things through the eyes of a primary source. And that's so much worse through social media because number one, you never know, you know, um, who's, who's sending that, like who's sending that out, who's putting that out. But number two, like it, everything is now seen through the eyes of a, of a, you know, a secondhand source. Like, and it's more than just whatever they want to show you on TV. It's, you can see anything pretty much. And it's constantly being sent back to you, streamed back to you. I consider my mother's Facebook page a primary source. <laughs> Whatever she posts, I take no. But you're right. And we haven't even talked about the fact that Alex Jones is a Texan, right? We didn't even bring right. up Alex Jones. That's and he's in kid. and he's uh he's in Scanner Darkly. Oh, There's is another he? one called her film, right? Yeah. I, I forgot what the other Linklater film he's in because I haven't seen that one. But yeah, but yeah. he's um, no, he's in Scanner Darkly. Yeah. Wow, I forgot that. I forgot that part. Probably they have him. He's a he's a he's a guy yelling on the street corner uh, in Scanner Darkly, and then the police. Oh, okay, yeah. Program. Yeah, that's that's appropriate. I and remember he's a big enough I, show that he'll just do whatever they say. Here, do it. <laughs> um, no, but like you know, I I uh, we watched we watched it for a stream we did on Ben Burgess's show back in what was it? I think it was February or March. I think something like that. Yeah. So Andy and I both watched it for give them an argument because like the form of this show kind of was originally on uh, GTA and we had like a bunch of people on it talking about Scanner Darkly. I think it was Ben and Ryan Lake and Jeremy Johnson. And um, so I remember I watched it three times that week. And the first time I watched it, I didn't know Alex Jones was in it. And I remember hearing that voice and being like, holy fuck, is that Alex Jones? Then having to like stop the movie, look it up and be like, oh, all right. <laughs> No, it's I, the ghost of Michael Brooks in your room. It's the it's the ghost of it's the it's the ghost of a uh, well not the ghost but it's Sam Cedar doing a um, Alex Jones impression. It's totally impromptu. <laughs> hey, listen, I'm old enough to remember when Alex Jones was actually sort of like an alternative news source that you could actually trust. That he was, you know, he was more like I wouldn't say he was had the gravitas of like a democracy now, but he was in the early days. Uh, you know, a, a, a legitimately skeptical sort of uh, uh, crit critical media figure. Uh, you know, he wasn't nearly as popular and obviously he metastasized into whatever got him the most clicks and the most money and so on and so forth. I, we don't need to do an autopsy on his career. But when, when his first few videos, 
you know, he would interview Noam Chomsky. I think he interviewed Terrence McKenna. I mean, he would have people on that I was interested in as uh, you know, whatever you want to call it. Is it still called the counterculture? Is it what's counter to the counter to the counterculture? But, you know, those kinds of things that uh, as a young sort of weirdo, your your gravitates towards. He, he had a place there for a minute. It's just, again, here we go. The dark side of this um, keeping it weird. You know, weird doesn't always mean good. It can mean violent and scary. Well, the, 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 the big thing about uh, Richard Linklater and Alex Jones is that originally before he was InfoWars, before he was online, he was on um, Austin Public Television. So right. he was so he was like a pub, like the, the guy that you would watch on, on whatever the public airwaves that would come on and, and yell about stuff. And when he really got big was uh, Bohemian Grove. He infiltrated Bohemian Grove and like snuck in a side door. Wow, that Except was even when was it? That was like even early 2000s already, right? Yeah. And interestingly, I, um, I, I, I don't know how the burger group. So when I was in, when I was in Austin, um, when I was in, I, I think, it, I think it was Austin. Um, I was, I went to Austin. I went to El Paso back in May. Uh, San Antonio. San Antonio. Wow. I went to Austin. <laughs> how do you know that? And I don't, so I went to Austin. Then I, went I was to born Austin. in El Paso, bro. Sam, Sam right, Houston so to, just rolled in his grave. So I went to Austin. I went to San Antonio and I was with my ex-girlfriend at the time. Um, and we, she had some guy that she knew that we met for dinner, and we were watching Eyes Wide Shut for the stream that I did with uh, this. Ben. I want to see this movie. So, so I, so I mentioned the Bohemian Grove thing to somebody that like had taken us out to dinner, and and I think it was in San Antonio. I don't think it was in Austin. And the guy started telling me about how his cousin was this famous uh, jazz musician, and he had been to Bohemian Grove, and it was nothing like Alex Jones said. And I was like. This is fucking weird. I don't want to hear like your Bohemian Grove stories, but I but I brought but I brought that up on 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 air when I was in San Antonio, and my ex girlfriend was like, "Why the fuck would you have said that? Like, what if what if someone comes and takes that guy away now or something?" And I was like, <laughs> "And have they? I don't know. I lost. She's an ex girlfriend now, so I lost touch. It's her problem now. Bye." <laughs> I know the one thing about Texas, though, people do tell big stories. Um, uh, and it's it's one of those things like you just got to uh, accept. Um, and, and this movie kind of, you know, brushes over that. And it's just like, yeah, no, that's just that's just who they are. I remember um, one of my friends, he, you know, I knew from summer camp. He'd always uh, he'd every single time we come back, he'd be like, oh, I had a uh, I had an internship with Patrick Nagel. Patrick Nagel died in 1984. This is 1990. <laughs> you know, it's like, like, uh, I don't know who Patrick Nagel is. Cause like, it was easier to lie before Google. Yeah. But I mean, that's Patrick the same Nagel's thing. The though. Guy who did the, uh, the um, Duran Duran album cover with Rio. But that's literally the same thing with the, the old anarchist guy. Right. And this, that says he, um, you know, he was in the Spanish civil war. And no, then exactly. His, his daughter is like, yeah, he went to Spain in 1955 long after the, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So, so I mean, it's just it, it is a bit of a Texas thing where, where you know the stories do get bigger. So you know, take, yeah. take that's also that's also I think what part of this movie is about is is people willing themselves into existence through their stories that they're telling either themselves or other people. You know, there is a good side to that, right? It's on the one hand, you're a total liar and you're a phony, but in a way, you the mythology of yourself is what, in some ways, keeps you coherent, right? It's you. You've got to have some vision of your 
you know, your purpose. And uh, sometimes you got to fake it till you make it. And there's all these ways in which this ability to spin yarns is not only a lie or only a right. Like he, he's it, Linklater as the director is being somewhat, um, again, that loving take on these things. And so it's not simply uh, a pernicious factor of uh, human frailty. It's also like, you know, like the guy says, like, uh, oh, what are you going to do? Go to New York and like take a picture of the people picking up the trash. And it's like it's such a, a wonderfully uh, spot on uh, dig at someone actually doing something. And she's just like, well, what are you? And he's like, yeah, you're right. Right. He's like, ah, I guess I don't do anything. I just, you know, I'm an anti-artist. He like he has all this kind of. But but yeah. eventually he admits like, yeah, you got me. you got me. I just work here and I do. I don't do anything like <laughs> there's. I just it's so I don't know it's so complicated uh you know people because to, to even just to consider yourself an artist you have to tell yourself I'm the guy I've got something to add right that that takes a certain level of belief in yourself yeah um, and and a certain level of bullshit I mean yeah. you know because there's there's millions of like I don't know there's millions of artists there's probably billions of artists throughout time like to, to even like break through like you know what I mean? Like you're, you're taking that chance away for people that are far more talented than you, I'm sure. But is that right. like, can you sell yourself? Like, can you and commodify, that's a, that's can you commodify a, yourself? Yes. Your art? Or can just, you can you have that in, internal belief? You know, maybe it's delusion or whatever, but you know, especially if you're doing something that may be considered off the beaten path, like how do you justify walking the, your own path? Especially when you still got to pay the rent. Yeah. All right, By so the way, also, I just want to say uh, early use is maybe the first use I ever saw of the Fisher Price Pixel Vision camera. Are you familiar with this early technology when the screen kind of goes very uh, pixelated? It's black and white towards the end. Do you know that? Yeah. Do you know what this camera is? Because there was like a movement in the early 90s, late 80s, because it, it was this toy camera that basically worked on audio cassettes. So it had the lowest phi video possible and it was like a kid's video camera but a bunch of pioneering young filmmakers especially uh in particular i know um uh james benning's daughter um why am i blanking on her name but she made a bunch of movies with it and michael almereda who went on to make you know hamlet with ethan hawk and all these other bigger movies he made a movie called another girl another planet which is like an hour-long movie just made on that little camera and it makes its appearance there and it's just a really funny moment where He's like, here, use my camera. And that one guy, I don't know if this resonated for you. Forrest, wh when were you born, Forrest? 94. Okay, so this was, uh, it's all happened before you were even conceived. Uh, he he walks up to her. Uh, the guy walks up to the person with the camera and goes, man, there ain't no film in that shit. Yeah. yeah it, no, really it looks like a toy. So the, that to me is this weird presaging of where like digital and, and the medium is going to go. This was still shot on 16 millimeter, the, the medium of the independent filmmaker all the way up until this time. Um, but there is, you know, even, even just his ability to play with this really this toy medium in this moment. Um, I don't know. I thought that that took a risk and it was just, I guess it's all part of the, the aesthetic of, uh, you know, go your own way, do your own thing. But I just thought it was so funny that he says, as der derisively there's no film in there so you're, you're not really filming me because you don't have film in there yeah i'm well and it's also you know i i think a big part of his story richard linkladder's like story before this was that he would walk around with like these you know these little small cameras and like film things and he was trying to be like a filmmaker but hadn't made anything you know 
had made those these great cameras we see at the end. Yeah. Yeah. So I, I think that he's kind of nodding to himself at that point too. Like he's, he's now creating a feature film and that, you know, I mean, I, I know for a fact that like, I mean, I, I grew up, you know, at, at a time when it's, um, you could get more substantial cameras, I think, than that for a low amount of money. And like my mom was like the photography teacher. Don't don't brag. Don't brag. You were born <laughs> later. Come on. So so like my mom was like a photography teacher. So I, we always had like these cameras around, and I always wanted to be. I mean, I still want to be a film director. I say that in the past tense all the time, as if like that still can't happen. I'm fucking twenty seven, but like, you know, I like I've wanted to direct films. Like that's what I want to do for a, a career when it eventually uh, takes off, and it's. You know, it's don't make so, me give you my list of directors who all made their first film way after 30. I will go ahead. <laughs> so, no, so it's like I, I that resonates with me like someone like Linklater, like having a little Super 8 camera and going around with it, and you know, and then finally creating a feature film that's not a you know, it, it's not a professional feature film, it's the beginning of this kind of indie movement where oh, he's, don't you know what I mean? Like, oh, don't use that word professional that way, that really. As a knife uh, no, but heart. you know what I mean. Like, it's not a, it's not a. Poly- I know what you mean. That's why I hurt. It's not a studio. This is better than professional. That could eschew that kind of professionalism, for God's sakes. Make something original and risky, and and but, idiosyncratic. But I think that I think that the '90s indie indie wave of filmmaking is is like, you know, a lot of those films are timeless. Like Clerks, I think, is a timeless film. Slacker is a timeless film. Like, it's creating something more realistic and less. Uh, less noted and less kind of, you know, with things crossed off, what the studio says, oh, you can do this, but you can't do this. Sure, it's less commercial. Yeah. And uh, I guess- Although Clerks, you know, I don't know. I'll debate with you the the artistic merits of Clerks, but it definitely was a movie that made a million other people go, well, shit, I could do that if you could do that. Yeah, well, all right, so this is, so this perfectly cues up. This is the last clip I want to play. It's Kevin Smith talking about how watching Slacker made him say, oh, uh, th- I could do this. And so in, in a similar way, I guess. And I wanted right. to end it with kind of a, I wanted to end this uh, episode with kind of a conversation about um, how Slacker inspired filmmaking from there. August 2nd, 1991, that's when I go see Slacker on my 21st birthday. I'd never imagined before seeing that movie myself as a, storyteller let alone a filmmaker but he held a mirror up to a world that i knew even though it was a world away richard linklater made it seem possible clerks was a multi-step film for us and it was make it and get it done in order to screen at the independent feature film market, something that the IFP East, the Independent Feature Project, used to run back in the late 80s, early 90s. It's still around, but they've shifted what it is. Back then, it was essentially this kind of film festival where you paid 500 bucks, and they programmed your movie. And you, they were giving you a slot at like the Angelica Film Center over the course of this week, and that's wonderful art house cinema in, in Manhattan, down the village, village area. Um, so that you would try to pack that screening with as many like potential distributors or financiers or press as you could. Um, so we were gearing towards that. It was like make clerks and get there. Cause I'd read an article about Robert, Rod, not Robert Riga, Richard Linklater who had done slacker and taken it to the market and gotten a great reception when he came back the next year, he'd been there originally as a work in progress. And he came back as a finished film. He was hailed as a conquering hero. I said, well, this is what we have to do. This dude took slacker 
to the IFFM a year later, he had a distribution. So let's go to the IFFM and we'll get our distribution because that's how it must happen for everybody, right? And I had no clue that it wasn't that simple. But I think that helped. I think it helped being absolutely fucking naive and completely guileless and such a rank amateur because you didn't really think about the possibility that it might not pan out for you. You know what I'm saying? It just seemed to always make sense. Like, I remember seeing Slacker and I remember really enjoying it and laughing along with the movie when I saw it. But the people around me were laughing hysterically, dude, like gut busting, like knee slapping as if it was like a police academy movie, maybe the second one or something when we still kind of liked it. Um, so I was just like, man, if they think this is funny, I think I could make a funny film. And it never occurred to me that like people might not see that funny film because I'd seen people like like Robert and uh, Rodriguez and Richard Linklater and Spike Lee, uh, even Martin Scorsese back in the day, make their first film. And that kind of launches them into making the next film. They pay for the first one and have their mom help them make food or whatever in the case of Scorsese's flick. Next film, somebody's giving them money to make a movie. And that's all I wanted. We wanted to make Clerks just as a showcase film to be like, look, obviously we know how to make a movie, so can you give us money for the next one? So that was always the plan. It was a two-tier plan. Make Clerks, bring it to the IFFM, it will get sold, and then we think about the next one. I've been to the IFFM back in the day. Really? Yeah. I even had lunch with Bob Hawk, who was the guy who discovered Clerks at the IFFM. It became oh, I thought you were going to say you had lunch with Bob Weinstein, and I was going to be like, no, and he was only in a towel, and, and there was a plaid plant in the room. It was it was Wrong nobody, nobody ate, nobody ate. <laughs> but uh, that's yeah, and the rest is history. Then he went on to make Mall Rats. His true no, I don't know. <laughs> uh, I remember uh, meeting Kevin Smith back in '99. It was uh, at the Word and Pictures Museum. Uh, it was the Marvel Knights opening. They were celebrating. The where? I'm sorry, this was in '98. Let me take that back. Uh, the Word and Pictures Museum. It was a comic book art museum that used to exist in Northampton, Massachusetts, owned by the co-creator of the Teenage Ninja Turtles, Kevin Eastman. Nice. And, uh, they cut Laird out. Uh, well, no, I mean, Eastman and Laird did their own thing. So, you know, um, they're still friends. But there were only two names back then, Bob and Kevin. If you didn't <laughs> have those names, you're screwed. Yeah, no. Um, and uh, uh, It's Peter, by the way. And... <laughs> What did he? What did? What did he have to say for himself in '98? He'd already made, uh, I think, Dogma by then, right? No, he was editing Dogma at the time. Okay. So he was Dogma was not out. We did not. He made know Chasing Dogma. Amy. Yes, uh, but he still, had I think, his best movie. But yeah, I digress. Well, I Clerks, I see Clerks, I, I relate yes. to on a. I think Clerks, I relate to on a level of like, you know, it just reminds me of. I mean, it reminds. I, I think everybody of you know, people that they know kind of working at just like a, a low end job kind of bullshitting about things. And like, so I kind of feel connected to it for that reason. And like, you know, just even, even like years and years and years after it gets made, like, you know, in my town, there's plenty of people who just kind of hang out outside of stores and like sell drugs to people and like the Jay and Silent Bob thing. And I, I don't know. So it, it kind of felt like watching something realistic to me, but I think chasing Amy on a, on a cinema level is probably his best film. Like a cinematic level. I only say that because it's like it sort of seemed to me where he was saying like I'm I'm like whatever he was almost 30 years old and I don't know anything about women or life like it, it was sort of him saying like uh, a mea culpa just for being the sh schmuck who just somehow is making movies. You know, I, I actually really like uh you know 
when I hear Kevin Smith talk, he's like a great rock on tour. He's a great storyteller uh, in person. I'm just I'm not a huge fan of his movies. I, I, I know I, I'm glad that he's out there because I I identify with him as a comic book guy and uh, the pop culture that he we grew up with the same stuff. Um, so and in terms of slacker uh, inspiring him, I don't know if that's cosmically on the plus, plus side of the ledger, but but it's <laughs> I mean, definitely undeniable that it did. Just to paint a picture for you, Matthew, because I think you'd appreciate this. Uh, Kevin Smith was hanging out uh, in the corner next to um, a painting by John J. Muth from uh, uh, Enemy Ace, which is gorgeous, by the way. Okay. Um, and it was a painting of Ben and, Affleck. Just no, no, but he had a, he had a bodyguard, and the dude had uh, you know this this pinstripe suit looked like an extra from Sopranos, um, but the dude was like five eight, so I'm like towering over him. Um, and but he was wide, like like the dude he was like probably take wide. you out. No, yeah, yeah, yeah. If that dude punched me, I would have been on the floor. Um, and, and like people were kind Two of punches, hit. me hitting you, you hitting <laughs> the, floor. the floor. Yeah, okay. <laughs> um, but no, and the thing is too is like like uh, but but like uh, people would crowd Kevin Smith, and you just hear him crack his neck, and he'd just be like, "Step back, Mister Smith needs some space." <laughs> this was in '98. Yeah. Wow. Yeah, the only time he's only gotten uh, bigger since then, I gotta say. Yeah, yeah. The only not, time not weight wise, but no, no, uh, he's actually gotten much thinner. And yeah. oddly, he started smoking pot and then lost a lot of weight. You gotta tell me how that trick works. Probably I he became a vegan. But, but enough like about enough about Kevin's probiotic pot. Ah, I guess so. I'm gonna ask. I guess I'm gonna ask. Uh, starting with you, um, Matthew, film guy. Um, I'm an Alex thoughts. Jones stand. Final final thoughts on this, but also just I, I think I want to I want to just you know see where you think this movie kind of fits in in terms of inspiring this '90s uh, indie wave that follows it. I I don't know if that question is so important to me. I mean, it clearly was inspirational. I know when I saw it, it was already I think the mid '90s or early '90s, and I loved it enough to want to put the poster up on my wall, and that poster carried uh, followed me into a. Uh, multiple places in college and then when i moved here so i was definitely inspired by it um because it showed just you don't need to make this sort of uh, narrative so there you go nice <laughs> that's i think probably circa 2002 maybe you can also you can also see the cd cover for trump lamond which i think turned 30 today so shout out to the pixies last the main studio album trump lamond Oh, and I think you can see a Star Wars poster right behind me there, too. So all kinds of cultural signifiers there. Um, but anyway, um, you know, it was inspiring to see that you could make with very little money something that was not trying to be a Hollywood movie, was not trying to be professional in the way that you mean. And I know you didn't mean it in that negative sense, but not trying to even do that. Like, because you could even say the other movie that really inspired me a lot when I was 17 was Reservoir Dogs. And that was trying to be you know, it was a pastiche of, of gangster movies. It was shot for the budget, but it was it wasn't trying to be anything other than a really well told, you know, somewhat Euro influenced, you could argue, uh, with the narrative structure, but but genre movie. Whereas this slacker, it was his own. It was sui generis, uh, and you could maybe point out some earlier antecedents like Laurent La and some of these other movies that sort of had a structure like that, but. Um, it, it was it was inspiring just for what it accomplished. Now that I watched it twenty something years later, I'm actually even more impressed with what it was able to actually 
portray as a, you know, as I keep saying, this sort of spiritual diagnosis of this really uh, insidious problem, which has only gotten worse. Um, it actually has a really deep depth to it that I didn't actually remember because all I really remembered was its uh, radical aesthetics, you know, the, the whole non-narrative thing and, and the funny jokes and the pap smear and all these other things. But um, as far as that goes, you know, but it itself was inspired by another movie that it's some people, you know, people are always trying to find the, the beginning of the American independent film movement. Uh, and it keeps going back and back and back. And, you know, uh, one of the other touchstones was Stranger Than Paradise, the Jim Jarmusch movie. I don't know if you guys know that one. But, you know, that was sort of they were sort of slackers from New York and it's sort of a laconic style. And but he was influenced by Chantal Ackerman and, and people before him. And you go back to it was out of the, waves, shadows. the no wave scene. What's that? That, that was, he was uh, coming out of the no wave scene, too. Yes. Which is funny um, that you just heard Link later uh, name check that in that in that. So that was an interesting little touchstone. Yeah, those guys was bringing that back up. <laughs> Yeah. And, and, you know, and what was the no wave music scene? It was just like songs that didn't have a structure, free jazz, noise, things that were just like energetic. Uh, you know, I, you know, there's you got to get the no New York uh, uh, album just to get your time. No. of that. I mean, you listen to it once. Everyone should listen to it. once. OK, OK. It's not even a good example of what that sound was, because like, uh, um, uh, you know, like took it and polished it too much. Uh, I see what so, you're saying. So, yeah. Sure. Uh, yeah, you know, if you really want to get a taste for it, you know, look for early uh, lounge lizards. Look for um, uh, teenage Jesus and the Jerks. You know, uh, but not John Laurie, who was in in Stranger Than Paradise, and who actually told me once that Jim Jarmusch ripped off the story from him. So I don't know if that's you can take that for what you want. But um, okay, yeah, early I had, lounge a, lizards. I, had a, I had a Dead Man poster in my room growing up, and at the time that I had it in my room, starting, I didn't, I hadn't even seen it. I've seen it since, but um, my dad my dad was part of like an architecture firm that I guess Jim Jarmusch recruited to uh, work on his house. And my dad got a tour of Jim Jarmusch's house. And no way. Felt Where was like that? In the city. And he always felt like this weird, like kinship to Jim Jarmusch and would bring him up all the time. Cause he's like, I've been in that guy's house. So we watched every Jim Jarmusch movie when I was well, a Jim kid. Jarmusch hails from Akron, Ohio, where I grew up. So I've always wanted to ask him, where did you go to high school? That's the real question I have for him. <laughs> but, um, but, but, but anyway, there, there's, you know, in terms of slackers, uh, the question was its impact on the culture. Um, you know, unfortunately, like Linklater says, the word got taken to be this sort of, uh, you know, I mean, uh, when I think of the word slacker, I think of the principal in Back to the Future uh, yelling at Michael <laughs> J. Fox, you're a slacker and your dad was a slacker. Um, but it's in a way, it's like uh, they stole the word back to, for a bright, 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 bright shining moment. Um, but um, I guess it got subsumed, you know, the spectacle reabsorbed it again, just like it does everything else. Um, I mean, it's hard, it's hard to, but it's hard to feel like um, the beginning of the, the like the trailer that we watched at the beginning for Slacker, the first thing it says is Slacker, a person who evades duties and responsibilities. So, you know what I mean? Like it's when he complains about the fact that Slacker is being taken that way, like, and I'm sure that he's not the one that had any kind of final say over the trailer whatsoever. Definitely but, not. That was that was Harvey Weinstein. No, I don't know. <laughs> no, it was, it was, was it, Mer it wasn't Miramax. It was somebody else. It was a yeah, Ryan. It was a Ryan. It was a Ryan. That, yeah. That, but but also, still, like, that, that, you know. that, yeah, you you've got to. He's got to own that a little bit. But you know, the marketing is what it what it is. But yeah. also, the just the just the idea of the um, you know it was sort of is like the last gasp. Uh, you know, it, it seemed like the 90s when, the, by you know, we had kids, 
and Gummo, some of these other movies that I think are like really great, iconic, uh, uh, you know, sort of uh, off the beaten path. Gummo more than kids, but you know, these these things of showing people living in an underclass and so on. Um, I don't know the 2000s it seems like and again this isn't get off my lawn skin but maybe it is uh you know that no one's trying to even do that anymore right no one's you're the, the you're being yourself is having a podcast that everybody listens to or having an instagram or in my case up. nobody listens to yeah see because you're <laughs> for real because you're legit you do not have anybody watching what we're saying right now that's because you're authentic that's because you you are truth telling but, but you know true what I'm saying? Authenticity, like, true authenticity everybody walks away from. I'm not even talking about not finding an audience. I'm talking about aiming for, you know, slickness, yeah. aiming for professionalism. It seems like I, it's a quaint notion that even, you know, by the late 90s, early 2000s, that this idea of being an independent filmmaker meant anything other than making a low-budget gangster movie. And then, But, I mean, also it's all been commodified to the point where, like, the aesthetic of, of – the aesthetic of pretending to try to not be making something, you know, that that seems high budget. Well, the last gasp of that, the last gasp of that was, and maybe we'll do a whole show on this. Is what a derisively also, in some ways, came from Texas. Uh, in some part, was the mumblecore movement, which was, yeah. you know, when digital video came out, that let a whole new generation of people make a movie uh, that looked good enough to show in a theater with their home video camera, which you know, Linklater couldn't even do. So it's still there's echoes of it, but I don't the know. The old Duplass brothers, the Duplass brothers, Bujalski. I'm thinking of, of as the main progenitor of that. He, I, I don't know if he's from Texas originally, but he made a couple of his movies down there. He went to school at Harvard, and so he made a lot in the Boston area. But um, there's guys like Todd Rohall who are from there. There's guys like Bob Byington. In fact, Bob Byington's one of the guys. I didn't watch this because I didn't want to ruin myself for it, but they made the cover version, Slacker 2011, uh, that we were talking about earlier, where they did the, they remade the whole movie in 2011 Austin, uh, which I will now go and watch now that we've talked about this. But yeah. yeah and, they, also, and I'll also send you the link letter uh, commentary that I found. There's um, still there's still, a, there's still an Austin. There was still an Austin indie film scene for the longest time, uh, you know. UT I, Austin I, was a good film school. At least it used to be. I don't know anymore. Yeah, because because like Robert Rodriguez also kind of got out of that. Uh, you know, was like one of the last people to kind of. Yeah, but there's another movie. great example of what did he make? He made an action movie that let him then go on to make action movies. He was not as much respect as I have for him, and as much as El Mariachi blew me away, he was not trying to. He was trying to make a calling card deliberately just to make Hollywood movies, and it worked for him. And now he's his own. He's like his own studio in Austin, right? Or somewhere. Yeah, because he left the guild too, the director's guild, because of the uh because of Sin City, if I remember correctly. Oh, is that right? Because he couldn't like operate his own camera. Like he's he's like a real he's an auteur, but of you know, comic book movies. Yeah, well, yeah, no, it was, I think because uh Frank Miller was a co-director and he can't have a co-director, it's not related to you. Oh, is that right? Oh, if, really? If, if I remember correctly, I, I might be getting things mixed up here, but maybe he um, needed to adopt Frank Miller and then they could have <laughs> ever had his parents mm -hmm. adopt Frank Miller. All right, so know. Andy, what anyway. about probiotic pot? What about it? <laughs> you get high and then and you then shit? It, what, what it, it eats the stuff in your stomach and you lose weight just like Kevin Smith. Oh, that's what happened to Kevin. Right. Okay. <laughs> All right. Um, no, Andy, so your, your thoughts on the, you know, your final, your final thoughts on, um, on Slacker. Uh, you know, Slacker, I think, you know, because we're talking about the title, I didn't I didn't interject this because I wanted to save it for me, so I'm verbose at this point. 
Um, but Slacker is more about not the uh, uh, is about not participating in organized society, and that's a that's again a bit of a Texas thing, because uh, you know if you're if you're operating outside, uh, you know, creating art, um, this, you know, honestly, like like there there isn't that respect for for artists in Texas. Um, not, uh, Even the electrical I, grid in Texas is a slacker. Yeah, well, I mean that's a different thing. That's a different thing. That's post. That's post Bush. Let, let, you know, I'm taking it back before then. It was just like, um, uh, I, I too liked my porn post Bush. <laughs> but but people, um, <laughs> that was terrible. <laughs> but 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 uh, it's a movement. It's an artistic movement. It is. Yeah. It is. Um. Anyways, uh, the the um. Uh, like if you're able to, to, to create art and still participate in capitalism, um, people respect you. So, so like, uh, th there were a lot of actually like art stores where people would like just do basically paintings that you decorate your house with. Um, these things weren't like masterpieces. They're like Bob Ross freaking paintings, but, um, and now they sell uh, them at home goods, but that, uh, yeah, except this is before, before that, that, that kind of took off like the, uh, uh, hobby lobby and whatnot. This was at like, um, actual painters selling their goods to, to people. Um, and, and that was a bit of the last gasp of that. Um, the starving uh, artist show at the, at the hotel. Yeah. But, but people actually were making enough to like have a, a, a storefront um, right next to the comic book shop. I went to uh, with, uh, with the dentist I was mentioning earlier. Uh, there was a woman who that's what she did was do these gorgeous paintings. And, um, you Aww. know, Dennis actually took Sorry. me over there Turn one day. Hand. Uh, to make sure that that I met her, we, we talked art for a long time, and she kind of uh, pointed me in the right direction on a lot of things, uh, which was helpful because uh, I wasn't taking art at the time because uh, the art budget got cut because uh, football. Um, that's a whole other thing in Texas. Uh, I, don't but, think, uh, I don't think cutting the art budget because of football is uh, is just a Texas thing. Oh, specifically <laughs> no, because because like like all the money went to either to football, and if they had money for the arts. It went to cheerleading and band. Yeah, that, that's the kind of thing that happens everywhere. I think in America. I mean, we, you know, I guess you could. Oh, argue come on, dude! Like, like you're just like saying, like, like, oh, this little thing happens. No, no, no. Texas, it is a big freaking deal. Like, like it, it is. It's, like, a, to it's, a scale. it's bigger than Jesus football in Texas. Yeah, no. I, I remember my my sister took piano lessons from this elderly couple, and they still had box seats for the high school football game. Um, and the, the the stadium we had was built out of stone, so that thing's gonna last forever. Unless like an earthquake took it down because uh, they fracked up the place and now there's earthquakes everywhere. Um, uh, which which when I was living there, I remember that the big one hit California. They're just like, oh, we're in Texas. We'll never get hit by earthquakes. And uh, that school teacher. Now and if they were, it would have been the biggest earthquake. You know, everything's bigger <laughs> but, in Texas. But no, uh, Texas. Uh, I remember watching Rachel Maddow back whenever that was actually stomachable, and there was nothing else like it on. Um, you know, before left media kind of grew. And she brought up the earthquakes in Texas, and I kind of lost it at that moment because, like, I remember that distinctly that that one teacher, like, well, good thing we live in Texas because we'll never get hit by an earthquake like that. Um, you know, just that condescending voice. So uh, wait, so what does this have to do with? <laughs> He's getting to it. I've lost uh, the thread. You know what? Honestly, I lost the thread too because y'all oh, thought he was getting to it. <laughs> um. But but I mean a lot of a lot of it was actually just like this portraiture of Texas and and, and it really did make me homesick um, for for that for that moment 
And, and uh, like, like, I remember, like, you know, I had that mullet. I was the kids hitting the uh, Coke machine, trying to sell the, the Coke to make money. Um, except we never had, like, any kind of reliable thing like that. Uh, I was I was hanging out with, you know, we'd ride our bikes all over the place and, and uh, find the dead possums after the floods to, to watch the maggots crawl out of them. Uh, this is sounding more like gummo than slacker, but still, it sounds like fun. <laughs> But, but, yeah. I'd like to do. I'd like to do an episode on Gummo, By the way, um, I'll be there soon. Yeah, but I, but, but I've been, I've been you talking know. about doing a Harmony Corinne thing since uh, since we really started this show. But sorry, I'll be there. Yeah, no, but but there's a lot of just nostalgia uh, drenched in this movie, and, and I think too um, that single voice that 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 you can easily overlook whenever you're younger uh, and, and love this movie so much is is. Um, uh, part of that, you know, there, there's a lot of nostalgia whenever you watch that because this is my, I don't know how I missed this movie. I, I'll be totally honest with you. I shouldn't have because, like, you know, you watch TV in Texas, like the news, they'll every once in a while do a fluff piece like famous people in Hollywood from Texas, be like, you know, Randy Quaid. <laughs> um, <laughs> you know, it's it's not, it's not a, a it coincidence always... that Linklater was a football player, right? Yeah. No, and, and, it, and these lists would always end with, and, Rip Torn. So oh, Rip Torn. Yeah. Rip Torn. <laughs> yes, Rip Torn, famous Texan. Uh like yeah. I don't um, think of him right away, but great one. No, no, but he was always like the last on the list. So so I just always remember like and Rip Torn. Well, because and Rip Torn sounds like I mean it's a good way to end to end the a list. Yeah, no, I think I'm gonna end every list that way with and Rip Torn. But uh, yeah, so somehow I actually missed this movie. And so like, like I can totally see the whole nostalgia factor uh, of like, you know, um, uh, watching this and like getting all excited because it sounds like a zero books video introduction. And, and then, you know, everybody kind of speaks with that, the, that singular voice that, that uh, Doug edited together at the beginning um, with, with a very similar accent talking about, you know, making TVs and stuff. And um, uh and like, but like, uh, here I am. I'm in my 40s. I, I'm a few years younger than Matthew. I'm I'm a I'm a different generation. I'm the Oregon Trail generation. He's Gen X. Um, I, I'm a Zennial. He's 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 Gen X. You know, um, he's, he's Empire Trail. Strikes Back. I'm Return of the Jedi. You know, we're two early, totally early different. Early lays it all out, doesn't it? Right there. Sorry, yes. buddy. <laughs> Missed yeah. it by that much. <laughs> but but um, I have seen them all in the theater. Just, you know, might not remember the first two, but I saw them. Um, anyway. You're still <laughs> valuable. What you bring to the table is very valuable. Yeah. So, so like, you know, there, there is, there, you know, like, like there is this generational thing that he's appreciating about the film that, like, I never quite connected to because that wasn't quite my generation. Like I said, I was those kids running around uh, selling the Coke. And, um, uh but yeah, I, I could see like like the thing is always the seeds of of a great filmmaker is in this movie. So so despite its flaws, despite the uh, complaints I've I've kind of uh, you know just listed there, um, you know like say so you can see the bones of it are, are uh, interesting and and um, the 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 moments where there were a little bit of conflict between the two you know the two voices on screen or actually when let me just say walk that back when the two voices on screen were different. Um, you, you know, those were some of the more interesting moments of the film, and and, uh, and and I would and I would argue that you know, um, I mean, not that I think that this is um, artistically his best film whatsoever, but you know, Days of Confused comes out three years later, and it feels like throughout a lot of that movie that the voice of Slacker is kind of in conflict with 
a, a more mainstream voice. Like, you know what I mean? Like a lot of the characters, a lot of the the characters that are kind of on the underbelly, I guess, of the high school and Days and Confused, or even or even you know on, on the ladder somewhere. Um, like I remember the scene um, in Days and Confused with Gilligan's Island, where the girls arguing about Gilligan's Island in the bathroom, like. That, that scene feels a lot like something that would have happened in Slacker. And it feels like you have your Matthew McConaughey's and you have like your Ben Affleck's and like all of these different um, more more mainstream actors in conversation with the voice of Slacker that comes out, I think, um, incredibly sympathetically in Days and Confused. Um, you got to remember, this is the guy that went on to remake the Bad News Bears, right? So there, there was this... That's why this I was so impressed by this movie this time through, because it really is a sort of an avant-garde movie, um, but with a, you know, a kind of a non-pretentious sort of gloss on a maybe a pretentious way to make a movie. Like, what if we had this big idea? Uh, and, you know, in Days of Confused, I remember loving that movie and uh, seeing it many times and laughing at it. But in the same way that I, you know, basically watch a, a mainstream movie, I don't necessarily consider that like a great work of cinema. Uh, at least it didn't take the same risks that, that this movie did. Um, but, but I mean, in some ways, though, I think Days and Confused kind of has a similar, um, it, it's a lot more mainstream, but there kind of yeah. is that non that non narrative structure in the way that you're kind of jumping between all these different characters and how they're experiencing this last day of high school. You know what I mean? Like, so there's more, I, of, a, think, there's more of a plot, there's more of a central character, no, and, and a, there definitely is, but but I think that there are elements it's, it's that more. He's, nostalgic too because it was a very um it was a, I mean, it was a period piece at the time it was a period piece. Yeah. yeah no i mean he's he's looking back at the 70s and the 90s but yeah i mean it I is mean, like american graffiti though but but what i'm saying you know, is what i'm saying is 1138 but, but what i'm saying is like <laughs> it's better than see, that like after what if you watch slacker and you watch days and confused at a similar time at least you can see elements of that avant-garde style creeping into a mainstream movie sure like, and this is also the guy that then made you know i didn't actually see this one yet but uh the boyhood movie where he like shot it over 10 years and let real time uh, change the actor so he's still got these high concepts in him you know we didn't mention this yet but it in terms of like the real turning point uh coincidentally same year as you were born forest was uh i think reality bites uh that really was the uh the, the the spectacle absorbing, you know, making the totally mainstream comedy of these Gen Xers who like to listen to 70s music and talk about pop culture and uh, seemingly are aimless and so on, right? Uh, but yet it was still like Melrose Place, essentially, at, at the heart of it. Um, but it's so interesting that, you know, from 91, Slacker comes out, 93, I think, Dazed and Confused, and then very next year, I, I saw actually uh reality bites at one of these like where they hand out on the on the campus like come see the screening tonight like a test screening and oh my god it killed people loved it um but that was a real uh you know reabsorption of any sense that this critique this cultural critique like when the people are sitting around talking about scooby-doo maybe at the time that felt like oh wow that's so funny you're gonna you're gonna talk like philosophy about scooby-doo or the smurfs but then eventually it just sort of started to eat itself you're gonna make me do this, aren't you? You're gonna make me play us out with the Trump Scooby Doo thing, aren't you? Oh no, no, no! I'm not going to. But before before you do that, before I just there's something else that I I noticed at the very end when the when the Super Eight camera is going crazy and I got to go find that director's commentary myself, but I will. Um, there's a moment where it flashes on this book, and I I feel like it's not it's not a, a an accident that this book is sort of about the beatnik generation and he's sort of like talking about where's this um this same 
uh, disconnect from society was already happening when I don't know what year this this book was. Uh, to be honest, this book has sat on my shelf for many, many years without me having read the whole thing. 1956. So this is already about the, the, the starting cracks of the very thing that Slacker is sort of um, pointing towards, this disconnect between the modern mediated get a job company man kind of uh, pressure and what young people wanted to do with their lives. Um, so uh, I think I, I, I you know, I, I give this this raised I, it sh probably should have been there already, but this raised my estimation of Rick Linklater as a, a an important filmmaker, uh, having watched it this time through. And now I want to go back and watch all of those other movies, although the last like four he's made are like almost like direct to video or something. But anyway, important movie. Uh, I definitely don't think it was all about the nostalgia, even though I got a couple of nostalgia buzzes off it, the haircuts, the, the clothes and so on and so forth. But I think at, in the bottom line, this is actually a great work of art that actually tells something that's so relevant outside of the, um, the milieu it was made in. There's also a, there's also a book that the first time I remember hearing about Slacker, um, he was interviewed for a book that I read. I don't think I read this book, but there's a movie. I mean, there's a book by uh, Vincent Pierre, um, who who was the one that signed this movie, and it's called um, it's called something Mike Slacker and Dykes. Like that's the name of it. it rhymes. Yeah, Spike Spike Mike Spike Slacker. Mike Slacker. Yeah, yeah, and and um, yeah. So he was the one that signed Slacker. Yeah, yeah. yeah. And he was also the one that signed the Spike Lee movie, so that makes sense. I don't know. And Clerks. Title. And yeah, and Clerks. But but yeah, so he he ends up being like a prominent um, Kevin. I think Smith the mic is the mic might be Michael Moore. I'm not sure. Yeah, you know it, it is. About right. It's um, Roger and me. He signed. He he, yeah. he was the guy that okay. sold Roger and me. Yeah, that, that would have been the um, right time frame. <laughs> so, uh, yeah. So that that's um, it's interesting that it, that's that's the first time I remember hearing about. Like I don't know. Like when I was when I was like a when I was like a teenager, I was a huge um, fan of Clerks. Like that was like just a movie that I just read. That's the right time. That's the right time to be a fan of Clerks. I gotta tell you how I missed watching Clerks. It was a ridiculous story. I, I was freshman orientation. They were actually going to show it um, uh, Saturday night, and instead of instead of watching it um, like everybody else did, we we camped out in the lounge of uh, of the. Um, of the dormitory we we're staying in and watched cartoons all night. So we were watching like uh Space Ghost and uh Fantastic Four and Black Star and like all the crazy ass Hanna-Barbera cartoons that they'd show at like four in the morning on the Cartoon Network in 1995. All right. Well speaking of that, here's here's uh here's James Lawson Johnson as Trump playing us out. Goodbye. <laughs> Scooby-Doo, 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 they call him Scooby-Doo, they call show Scooby-Doo, but Scooby doesn't do anything, Scooby is not involved, at the time, time Scooby's not even involved, he's just a bystander, it's one of the worst deals we've ever had, to call a show Scooby-Doo and then not deliver on Scooby-Doo, this is not a show about a dog sniffing its ass, okay? This is your show of where the mystery team are in a van and they walk around and they do, you know, they they figure out, you know, mystery. They're solving mystery. And Scooby is not involved in any way, shape, form. Scooby, frankly, gets much too much attention, money, 
We're giving way too much attention to Mr. Scooby. And he's not doing anything. Scooby do, he doesn't do. So we call him Scooby, but he doesn't do. We call him Scooby, but he doesn't do. It's a terrible deal. The show, by the way, if we were talking about who actually was doing anything, solving mystery and helping crime, stopping the bad guys who are really not so bad. If you talk to some of these guys, they just want to remake the world into a better place if it wasn't for these meddlesome kids and their stupid dog. Okay? But we're doing a show about mystery, team. You know, they're solving the mystery. They should call the show Velma. Why don't they call the show Velma? Velma's the one doing everything. Fred and Daphne, they're just over there porking in the corner. They're not, do they're not doing any of the making out being unhelpful, okay? Fred just drives. Fred's just the driver. He doesn't drive the plot, and he doesn't drive the mystery, and he doesn't solve the mystery. He just moves the van from place to place, A to B. And it's a very unhelpful thing. We don't even need the van. The van does not play. There it is. It does not have there at all. The other van. We can't be doing the same price.